This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. By the time I was a freshman in high school, there were few subjects that I struggled more with than mathematics. I was actually a decent math student in um, elementary school, in, um, in middle school. I, I got the grasp of algebra. No, I wasn't winning any awards. I wasn't on the math team or anything. But even when I took the, uh, the SAT, you know, I got a respectable score on the math portion. I think I did like a 640 or something. So it's right in that meaty part of the bell curve in terms of mathematical ability. For whatever reason, once you got to um, uh, trigonometry and calculus and probability and statistics and that whole thing, maybe I just had poor teachers in high school, whatever the case may be. When I got to math in high school, I, I couldn't do it. I just, that was always my weak point. I struggled, struggled, struggled. And by the time I got to college, I went to a college where you had to take at least one math or science credit, which I did not want to do. So I somehow found in the whole university the one uh, class where they would give you credit for a science or math credit that was the least like a science class that there was. And I struggled with that. So um, I wouldn't even think about taking a math class. Now, the reason I didn't want to take a math class is because I wasn't good at it. And I just I felt I knew enough about how to get by in the world of mathematics that I could um, and I'm sure I'm a tremendous embarrassment to my father, who's a a trained. He's got a degree in economics, but um, I just was not my thing. I had other interests. I wanted to go a different direction. The reason that I didn't like math, though, had nothing to do with the fact that math is racist uh, never once from the time I first learned my multiplication tables to the time I um, begged, borrowed, and stole my way into passing the uh, mathematics regents, never once did I think that math was racist. However, professors, and uh, th- I had to do a lot of research on this, because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't making a mountain out of a, whole, a molehill or taking one isolated example and blowing it up. Uh, I wanted to make sure that this was a real trend. And it is. Professors are increasingly claiming that subjects far removed from any consideration of race, including mathematics, which has been called the queen of sciences, are racist sexist, homophobic, and much more. Now, I'm trying to think of this. How is math racist? Might be difficult, might be boring, but can you really say it's racist? It's the opposite of racist. It's cold, hard numbers that treat everybody the same. But such claims are, they're not only impossible, but in my view, they destroy the credibility of those who are fighting legitimate racism. The latest example is Luis Leva, 
an associate professor of mathematics education at Vanderbilt University, who just delivered a lecture claiming that college math is white and a word that I don't know that I've, I'd have ever heard before, but I'm shocked that I don't hear it every day given the current era in which we're living. He, uh, this professor claimed that uh, math is not only white, but cis-heteropatriarchal. That is your adjective of the day, folks. Cis-heteropatriarchal. If you want to make something controversial, just call it cis-heteropatriarchal. That's a system, if you didn't know what it is, don't feel bad because I didn't either. It's a system of male straight conforming to assigned sex system power. Unfortunately, his views were given considerable credence because he was permitted to make such claims at the largest mathematics gathering in the world. The Joint Mathematics Meeting of 2023. Unfortunately, he's not alone. University of Illinois math professor Rochelle Gutierrez criticized math classes as, quote, a tool of whiteness. An article in the Journal of Mathematics Education by CUNY professor Lori Rubel argued that concepts of meritocracy and colorblindness are ideological precepts that disadvantage minorities. What? What? Two plus two is four? I mean, A squared plus B squared equals C squared? Uh, Solve for X? Come on. This is the most absurd thing that I've seen in a lifetime of observing and commenting on absurd things. Now, I would love to hear from you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. If you agree with this, that math is racist, we are putting you to the front of the line. And I have no interest in shouting at anybody or uh, debating anyone, really. I'm really interested in learning how you could come to this conclusion. So if you think math is racist, you will – we're taking your call first. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment even if you agree with me. I think this is absolutely absurd. This is ludicrous to a ludicrous level. Um, Professor Eric Loomis at the University of Rhode Island teaches that, quote, science, statistics, and technology are all inherently racists. Racist, excuse me, not racists. Durham University asks its math professors if they are citing work from mostly white or male mathematicians. Well, so what if they are? Descartes happened to be male. I think he was white. Does that make what he was saying? Does that make it absurd? Pascal. You know, you ever study Pascal's triangle of fractals and everything? He was male. So what are you supposed to do? Find a female who's got a similar fractal theory just so you can cite the proper research that you're trying to teach your students? Um, This is absurd. Mathematics has been called the queen of sciences. It's been called a pure science because so much of it is divorced from the real world. It's even divorced from language. They, You know, when we shoot stuff into space to possibly communicate with extraterrestrials and things like that. We, most of what we're betting that they don't speak English, most of what we send up there is math and science information. Because if you've seen the movie Contact, you know this, 
math is really the only true universal language. This is absurd. Math, as Professor John Bonzoff, a a law professor emeritus that uh, George Washington has said, math has been called the queen of sciences uh, because so much of it is divorced from the real world, that it is least likely to be inherently racist, sexist, homophobic, in contrast to fields such as history and political science, which can and do involve race, right? I mean, you tell you tell a story about history, you, there's a good guy and a bad guy in a lot of the stories. Math, two plus two is always equaling four. While it obviously has many practical al- applications, the math behind many of those real-world uses is highly theoretical, including, for example, the square root of negative one. Um, or, you know, operations in which two plus two can equal any other result other than four. It's not the case. Two plus two always equals four. Thus, while some teachers of math may individually engage in discrimination, the subject itself cannot be racist or cis-heteropatriarchal. And trying to pressure math professors to decolonize the subject by deliberately interjecting these, I don't even like the term, but interjecting these woke concepts, it can undermine its very legitimacy. I don't even know how you would make math woke. Are you just supposed to not cite teachings and theories from white people? Ironically, mathematics has been an important tool in fighting racism. You know, we've seen its application in all sorts of cases to demonstrate illegal discrimination based upon race in areas like hiring, the application of the death penalty, traffic stops, even discipline in schools. So if you couldn't add, if you couldn't multiply, if you couldn't divide, if you couldn't make percentages, how would you know that there was racist conduct in other areas? The people that decide what is racist, my advice to you is Find a target other than mathematics. Um, I think this is absurd. Claiming that everything, even in a purely theoretical discipline like math, is racist or sexist or homophobic, it robs those important words and concepts of any real meaning. And it genuinely undercuts efforts to use math tools like statistics to fight legitimate discrimination. I just, I don't understand how people can feel otherwise, honestly, and I would like to. So if you think everything that I just said is all wet, and you agree that mathematics is, uh, what what is this new word that I'm learning, cis-heteropatriarchal, please call me, because I'm interested in learning, I don't like to live in a bubble, I like to know how other people think. I like to know how other cultures view things. I don't assume that I'm right. I don't assume because I have an opinion about something, it's the correct one. I would love, love to hear from you. 800-848-9222. Here is a TikToker named Ms. Luna Activist on how she is teaching racist math. Hi, TikTok. Miss Luna, activist teacher here again. And I just uh, wanted to share with you guys how I'm having to address the racist math lessons that I'm having to give in my fourth grade class. I mean, Ron DeSantis is forcing us to teach these math lessons 
which are, uh, you know, we obviously know it's a white construct and uh, basically white came over on the Mayflower uh, that, that indigenous people here, they used to use spirit guides to pass their times table tests. So I'm having to teach these uh, racist math, math classes in my fourth grade class right. and it's long division right now, which is really hard for the BIPOC kids. So what I'm doing is I'm actually giving them a test with about 75% of the answers. And so while they're taking the test, they are able to have a more equitable experience. And in order for the other kids to not know that they have the answers, I actually give them some hammer and sickle coloring sheets there you go. so that they can um, stay busy while the other kids are finishing the test. You know, the white privileged kids who obviously can do it better. So I hope that that was satire. Obviously, the hammer and sickle is the communist symbol. Kenneth, did you, Kenneth, throw your headphones on there, Kenneth. Did you find, though, that this piece of audio that I just played, or was that Christian that found this? I found it, and I thought the same thing. She was in a classroom, so I'm like, she has to be sarcastic about this. So we don't know if this is satire. I'm not too sure. I found it. Uh, I hope so. For the sake of, I don't know if she has 20 students, 25 or whatever, 30. I can't add because I'm not a racist. Um, But I hope for the sake of her students, honestly, that she's just... Pulling out a leg. Because that's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. 800-848-9222. By the way, Michael Medved coming up in about 10 minutes. Very excited to talk with him. One of the most listened to radio talk show hosts in the country. And uh, somebody that uh, is very knowledgeable on things ranging from politics to pop culture. And uh, I am looking forward to chatting with him. Melvin in the Bronx. Explain to me how math is racist. Simply the phenomenal cause and effect. When it was against the law for a black to, to be able to read and write, and then it comes down to now on the fact that, that economics is not part of the curriculum in the public school system in New York State. Then you got the question of the whole equation of what King, Queen, but King Ferdinand was talking about 1501 when he issued a proclamation that all blacks be taken out of Africa, be brought out and changed. And they were to be educated in Christianity and taught the language to the master. And when the law is used against you and denied you an opportunity to own your own insurance company, your own banking system, yes, it's racist. Because the law will use against you to keep you from earning a living. That's what sharecropping is all but about. But, Melvin, let me ask and you. You opportunity to, for generational wealth Melvin. and to have something Hang to pass on. on. I always used to wonder Melvin. why black folks Melvin. come. I'm going to finish this up real quick. You can have your answer. Okay, well, I want to ask a question. Why black folks I always used to wonder why blacks in Chicago and Detroit were so broke. Come to find out why I do my homework, there were four free states that was against law for a black to I remain property. unconvinced Michigan, by Melvin's Illinois, explanation. Indiana, so I can't remember the four states. I'm still not. But he is when, not when convinced me that, that math is racist. Play, yes. That Pythagorean theorem? Yes, law for you to learn the concept. It must have been come up with conceptualized by Ku Klux Klan. pure math, economics. Melvin, I appreciate the specific examples that you pointed to throughout history, uh, both uh, King Ferdinand and slavery and uh, economics and uh, all, all thing, uh, things of that nature. But in terms of a subject matter that's taught in schools, right, um, why would teaching math, why would that in and of itself be racist? I get what the examples that you're pointing to say about racism, but why would teaching algebra or trigonometry or calculus, why would that be racist? Very simple. Life is a mathematical equation. You're born, you live, you die. Nothing plus nothing equals nothing. 
And what your ancestors learned was nothing. What they're gonna pass on to you, nothing. So my ancestors were not taught anything. But, but what about what, what about what kids are learning today, though? Forget about what your ancestors are taught. What about what what? I what, cannot forget what my ancestors. Were okay, taught. My thank, ancestors- you, thank you, Melvin. Okay. Um, so I, I mean, I get what Melvin is saying, and I'm not trying to diminish his point, but it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. And again, my problem is the overuse of the term racist. Because if racism is applied to all sorts of things that aren't really racist, then it means nothing. Then when you something is racist and it's called racist, it, people are going to be, oh, that's just another, uh, another uh, pot calling the kettle black. And I'm not trying to make that a racist issue. But it's another boy who cried math situation. <sighs> 800-848-9222. Before we get to Michael Medved, three open lines if you want to comment. Dominic is in New Jersey. Hello, Dominic. Yes. Good morning. morning. How are you, Dominic? I'm Frank, actually. Frank. Sorry how how racist that. of you to refer to me by well, another name. I apologize. Man. My intentions were not racist. I don't think I have a racist bone in my body. I'll let that go. Thank you. Eddie is in Nassau. Hello, Eddie. Hey, good morning, Frank. Just one question. Did uh, Corn Pop get uh, Biden's number? Well, look, I'm not sure. I don't want to use this as an opportunity to, you know, pick on Biden or any other political figure, because to me, that's the problem, right? Is when we make everything politicized, you can't have a real discussion about it. And if people start viewing the question of whether math is racist, in a Democrat versus Republican, you know, paradigm, then I think that's a very dangerous situation because this is not something that should be partisan. 800-848-9222. Corey is in Florida. Hello, Corey. Hello, Frank. Uh, I agree with you 100 um, percent. Math is universal language. Uh there is only one right answer, like science, Newton's laws of physics. Like you said, uh, a right triangle, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. So in a history, if you have to write a history paper, this teacher or whatever could be racist against you and give you a bad grade. But if you answer the the correct number, there's only one right answer in mathematics. So if you start there being racist, uh, I don't know what there is left. And another thing, last thing, uh, need more racket report. Love it. Thank you. I appreciate that, Great Corey. Uh, you're very kind to say that. Thank you very much. More on that a little bit later. I don't want to. Um, I don't want to uh, delay getting to Michael Medved. I do want to wish a happy birthday uh, to my friend uh, Gary Perone. I got to see Gary at a little uh, gathering at uh, at my uh, my home on on Saturday for the Giant game. What a debacle that was! I'll tell you about that a little bit later. And uh, Gary and his beautiful wife, Elena, were kind enough to come. Gary is the general manager of the uh, of the Ferry Hawks, and uh, he's a great guy and somebody that's been very much a mentor to me. So we are going to be allowing he and uh, Corey Windelspecht, who's another regular on our program, 
to uh, pick all of the bumper music today. So uh, happy birthday to Gary. Happy birthday to Corey. And uh, it was great to see Gary and uh, Elena over the weekend. It was uh, they You ever have a couple that just adds to a room socially? They just immediately bring up the social value of a room. Now, I'm hesitant to use the term add because that is a derivative of the racist subject of math, but it happens to be true. 800-848-9222. Michael is on the Upper East Side. Hello, Michael. Hello. Look, the very fact that the old style of doing addition was putting one number on top of another number that leads you to think that one number is worth more than another number. And that is basically what white people. I lost you there, Michael. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I think that was, uh, I think that was shtick. So probably better off that, uh, that we did got, uh, disconnected there. Ralph is in New Jersey. Hello, Ralph. You know, we have come to the point in this country where in the white world has really introduced the theater of the absurd and the ludicrous, uh, considering numbers, which is mathematics, basically, as being racist. Does everyone play the lottery, the Powerball, the Mega? You're playing a set of numbers, right? There's none more equal opportunity in this country than playing the lottery. And I'll go out and play tomorrow. The Powerball. Does that make me a racist, Frankie? Well, I don't think so, Ralph. Thank you. But, I mean, they say the lottery, because you're not going to win, the lottery really is a tax on people that are bad at math. So who knows? Maybe there is an element of racism there. Um, Let me – last call before we get to Michael Medved. And those of you that are holding, if you want to comment on this a little bit later, you're welcome to hold or you're welcome to call back. Mike is in Brooklyn. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank, how you doing? Yeah, hanging in there. Math, math could be, you know, more than one answer. It all depends on how you how you give the question. What's one and one? Two. Correct. What's one and one? Two. Eleven. No, it's not. True. Sure, you put one next to one, it's eleven. No, you said but... it. It depends how you say it. All right. You know, all how right. it can be twisted. But statistic wise. He said it wrong. Yeah. He should have said, what's one plus one? And then what's one and Yeah, one? yeah, he blew that. He, he blew yeah, he blew yeah. don't joke. You know, maybe uh, maybe comedy is a racist subject, which is why uh, Mike didn't spend much time studying that. Hey, speaking of Mike's, we are going to talk with one of the brightest men in all of broadcasting, Michael Medved, nationally syndicated radio talk show host, uh, author, and just a wonderful guy. He's been a film critic over the years, political commentator. We're going to pick his brain on a wide variety of subjects straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. This is Encore Numb by Jay-Z and Linkin Park. 
This is one of the great musical selections. Well, it's one of the musical selections. You will hear today as made by uh, Gary Perrone, a gifted baseball executive and a wonderful guy besides. But I'll tell you, if you want a radio show that has taken bumper music to the next level, you need to look at a show which is not only nationally syndicated and widely heard on some of the great stations around the country, but um, has a, a lot of insight into politics and pop culture. But when it comes to music, not only do they play some just great tunes on there, but occasionally you're really struck by some interesting little tidbits about the music that ends up getting played, whether it's uh, David Crosby or something else. That show is the Michael Medved Show. Uh, Michael Medved is a nationally syndicated talk show host, a best-selling author, a political commentator, a film critic. The man has worn a lot of hats over the years. Uh, It has been far too long since we've uh, conscripted him into spending a late night with us. Michael, it is great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me on the radio again. Oh, what a pleasure, and great to hear some of your callers, too. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> no, seriously, I, I, I hadn't heard that one about what is one plus one. Uh, yeah, well, count yourself among the lucky ones, <laughs> because I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure that's going to lead to a more fulfilled life. Uh, Michael, on a serious note, I want to get your take on uh, what we saw in California, uh, this mass shooting in in the uh, in Monterey, Monterey um, you know, in the aftermath of a Lunar New Year celebration. The uh, man who police believe uh, was responsible for this was found dead. It looks like he killed himself. I know um, it seems like every week, every month, there's a different mass shooting. I had some folks over yesterday and one person said, you know, uh, this is so sad what happened. But I've almost become, this is what she said to me, I've almost become numb to this because it happens so often. Now, in the next 24 hours, we're going to hear all the predictable debates. We're going to hear all the predictable talking points. Some saying this is why we need to ban assault weapons and strengthen background checks. Other people saying it's about mental health. Other people saying it's a cultural issue and we need to curtail violent video games and things of that nature. As somebody that's been watching this uh, over the last few decades, Michael, what, why do you think these mass shootings have become such a common tragedy in this country? Well, it, first of all, it's it's not as common as people think. Most murders are not mass shootings, and uh, they aren't things like what just happened in Monterey Park. They're people who know each other, and, and again, there are going to be more people who die in Chicago this weekend, just with normal garden variety gang murders and the the difficulty about it is we give so much attention Mm. to the mass killings and and, uh and again we've given so much attention think of the attention we've given to the four people who were killed in moscow idaho by this um crazy graduate student named koberger and uh, once you do that then for people with a certain kind of psychosis uh, it's an encouragement to imitate it. And it creates, obviously, this idea that this is really the problem in America. We have more people who die of suicide than who die of murder, mm. which is a gigantic problem in the country. And that doesn't even count the people more than 100,000, about five times the number as people who die in all the murders and all the mass shootings combined, uh, die of drug overdoses. 
And uh, again, we have a lot of problems with needless death in the United States. And I think one of the reasons that uh, that obviously the mass shootings uh, feel like they are just rolling and rolling and it's a tidal wave is because it receives so much attention every time. So is the responsible thing from a media perspective to do when there is a story about 10 people being killed, is the responsible thing to do to give it minimal coverage? Is is this a situation where the media coverage is amplifying a problem and making it seem worse and maybe at the same time creating copycat situations? I think it, it does do that. But look, it, there, it depends on what the circumstances of the killing are. I don't think they know anything yet about whether this is a hate crime against Asian people. It's a very uh, heavily Chinese-American part of L.A. I mean, uh, Monterey Park has some of the great Asian uh, vegetarian restaurants in Southern California. And it's one of those things. They had a big uh, lunar... Uh, New Year's celebration going on. And we'll find out more about what happened. But it seems to me that when you have a a hate crime, like the killing in in the church in Charleston uh, by the (laughs) neo-Confederate, who, who, by the way, deserves a death penalty, who came into Bible study and shot nine people, that's different enough, and it's close enough to somebody who's being or affiliated with an organized cause that it seems to me that that gets a, a lot of deserved attention. But the more garden variety uh, uh, lunatic and uh, insane person who is killing for who knows what reason, it seems to me when you, when you uh, repeat the guy's name and you look at everything he's posted on the internet and for for people who are lost lost souls that idea of getting that mm. level of attention and yep. fame i i think is part of the motivation uh, no it makes perfect sense and that's one of the reasons that uh, after the i think it was the buffalo shooting i decided i wasn't going to be commenting on the details of any of these mass shootings for precisely what you uh, described. Uh, Michael, one of the reasons I've always enjoyed uh, reading anything you've written or listening to you on the radio or via podcast is because you are able to talk about so many different issues. Uh, You're able to kind of disprove conspiracies. You're able to do uh, interviews on a wide variety of subjects. You talk about movies, you talk about cultural issues, and you certainly talk about news and politics. One of the things that on this program has me kind of moving more and more away from political discussion is because it seems like people, wherever they fall on the political spectrum, are just so angry and they're angrier than ever. And they don't just view people that uh, vote differently than they do as the loyal opposition. They view them as enemies really to be destroyed. I'm curious. You've been on the radio for a long time. I think you got your start um, as a, a substitute host for Rush Limbaugh on his widely listened to show. Have you noticed a coarsening of political discussion over the years and sort of an increased meanness when discussing politics, or has it always been this bad? No, this is worse than ever. And, and I, again, I, you really shouldn't say worse than ever because in the civil war, 720,000 Americans killed each other. And, and that's pretty bad. And, and, but the, the thing about the civil war is it, it really was, 
the product of people beginning to accuse the other side of conspiracies. And it's really the belief in conspiracy theories that it, it's not just that the other guy is wrong. It's that he's part of a, uh, a deep-seated operation to destroy the country. Or there's, according to polls, there are like over 20% of the people in this country who believe in QAnon, who believe that basically the entire world is being run by a bunch of blood-drinking, uh, child-molesting, uh, pedophile Satanists uh, at the bottom of a pizza parlor somewhere. And uh, again, when people begin thinking that of the other side, or you think that the other side wants to impose some kind of fascist autocracy on the United States, mm. uh, it, one of the things that uh, I think is, is also very unique about this moment is the every damn election right now, there's somebody saying, this is going to be the last election we ever have. Right. Democracy is at stake. You have to vote for America's soul on the ballot. And the implication being that the other side is so bad and so hateful and so miserable that uh, if they win, it means the destruction of the country. And uh, Adam Smith, a great capitalist philosopher, uh, said there is a great deal of ruin in a nation. And uh, <laughs> when people are predicting the end of America, and and this is our last chance. They're they're generally wrong. Yeah, you, if you're betting, it's probably a smart bet to take the over on when, when America is going to be ending. And <laughs> um, you know, speaking of conspiracies, one of the one of the issues that I've been hearing from callers and even some guests on this show in recent uh, days and weeks has to do with this. Biden documents case. And uh, obviously over the weekend, it was widely reported that uh, the FBI found six more classified memos in the search of President Biden's home. The discovery is the fifth since November. I'm wondering if you can give your two cents on the Biden document case generally and also to those who believe that this is the Democratic Party, or as someone told me on Saturday, the deep state's way of using this as an opportunity to take out Biden to make sure he's not the Democratic nominee in 2024, what do you think of that specific theory? Absurd, ridiculous. Um, I, I think that the the first of all, uh, the idea that the deep state did they want to take out both Trump and Biden? I mean. Uh, the, the idea that this was uh, planted by somebody else to make Biden look bad is uh, almost as ridiculous as the claim that uh, it was actually a conspiracy to plant the documents in Mar-a-Lago. I, frankly, I am tired of both of them. I yeah, hope they I both retire. I don't wish them ill. But uh, enough of Biden and Trump. I, I, who, who wants a Groundhog Day election? Uh, to, to to have that go over again. And and with all the terrible things that you can say against Biden, and you can say plenty, and all of the terrible things you can say against Trump, and you can say plenty, the idea that you would focus on these misplaced documents, which seem not like some kind of conspiracy, they seem like just native sloppiness and incompetence. And generally, what life has taught me, what observing politics has taught me, is if you can believe, if you can understand anything, 
as the product of just sloppiness, incompetence, laziness, uh, dumb mistakes. If, if you can explain it that way, that's probably what happened because there's plenty of that to go around on all sides. Uh, talking with Michael Medved, a nationally syndicated radio talk show host, author, etc., etc. Speaking of 2024 and Joe Biden, uh, we just spent we just had the two year mark of the midway point of uh, Biden's first term. And you've remarked how incredible it is that someone at Biden's age is even strongly considering running for a second term. Ultimately, do you think Biden runs? And if he doesn't run, who do you see as being the Democratic frontrunner for the nomination? I think it's a wide open race. I I I don't believe that Biden is going to be the nominee. Now, uh, what they're saying is that the State of the Union address is scheduled for February 7th. And apparently right after that, Biden is planning to announce his candidacy. I'm not sure he will. I mean, again, especially with this negativity, the, the big thing that a lot of Republicans are trying to do right now is to try to establish that somehow Hunter Biden was staying at the home in Delaware, the family home where his father lives, and that Hunter Biden may have touched some of these documents. And the idea that Joe Biden wants to go through the uh, House Oversight Committee and Jamie Comer, which which has Marjorie Taylor Greene on it and Paul Gosar and Matt Gates and all those folks, the, fa- the idea that Biden wants to spend the next two years of his old age, which, of course, could be the last years of his life, defending his very wayward son, uh, I don't I, th- I think that's not an appetizing prospect for President Biden. And frankly, if he did step aside, there would be so much goodwill for him all of a sudden, partially because the the nomination would be wide open. The obvious I think what most people would consider to be the front runner right now is Governor Newsom of California. And I think he's a problematic candidate. I think all the Democrats are problematic candidates. I think most of the Republicans are problematic candidates. But wouldn't it be good for the country if it were opened up again? And and maybe we could recognize that, yes, there are some people below the age of 75, (laughs) who might be able to inject some new energy and some new ideas into the political circus where right now, you know, Frank, what, what really got to me was the most recent poll in terms of approval for Mm. the U S Congress, 13% of Americans approve of the job Congress is doing. (laughs) Yeah. The thing that's amazing about that is that they found 13% that actually approve. I'd love to meet those 13 people. You get the sense that they wouldn't be dissatisfied with much. Uh, I was listening to you the other day, and I I think you were citing a column uh, that was written by Karl Rove, but you might have been giving your your own two cents, in which uh, you were talking about the idea that Trump is the weakest general election candidate against Biden in 2024 out of any of the main Republicans that are being talked about running Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, uh, Ron DeSantis, Glenn Youngkin. 
do you believe that Trump is the weakest candidate? Because the a lot of the Trump uh, partisans will point to the fact that he's the only Republican alive that's been able to win uh, Michigan, that he's been able to win uh, Wisconsin, that he's been able to win Pennsylvania and states that were not traditionally won by Republicans prior to 2016. So do you think Trump is the weakest? If so, what? I do. And I think he's the weakest uh, largely because uh, Americans have seen it. They've done that. I I think the number of Americans who really look back on the Trump's four years as a golden age. I mean, he was impeached twice. There there was constant controversy about absolutely everything. Uh, We added a trillion dollars a year to the uh, to the national debt which, of course, Biden's done even worse. But uh, the, the, the idea that, that, that the American people want to turn a corner and they want something new, I think they voted for Trump in 2016 with that desire to, to do things differently, shake things up. But uh, been there, done that in terms of uh, President Trump. And it, it seems to me that, first of all, we have better things to discuss in this country than Hunter Biden's laptop or than Donald Trump's handling of documents or all of the shady things that were done by the Trump company or the various people like E. Jean Carroll, who claimed she was raped by President Trump in a dressing room at Bloomingdale's. I mean, honestly, it brings the country down when that is your biggest focus politically. And that, I think, was the problem with the two impeachments. The two impeachments were so foolish and such a, a ridiculous mistake because the the Democrats who are doing that, they should be able to count. You know, I mean, it's, it's really a question of one plus one. There was no way they mm. get the Senate votes, which requires 67 votes in the U.S. Senate, there's no way that they get 17 Democrats to, to pardon me, 17 Republicans to go vote to drive. Right, it was Trump theater. It was office. political theater. Yes, and, and it's but it's bad political. Theater. Agreed. No, I, I mean I, I think it was imp- preposterous on a practical level and uh, and on the merits certainly. So let me ask the the counter question: If Trump is the weakest uh, GOP presidential candidate in twenty twenty four, and for people that might be hearing you for the first time, you're you've been a conservative uh, media influencer for a long time. Who do you think the strongest electoral Republican candidate is in 2024? Right now, I'd look at two guys. Uh, One of them is Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, who I think is seriously running. And uh, and one of the things that happens there is there's another good candidate, potentially, who's also from South Carolina, Nikki Haley. But I don't think that there are going to be two South Carolinians who are running. And the other candidate who a lot of smart people are putting money on right now is Glenn Youngkin, uh, the new governor of Virginia, who uh, who who probably this election. And I think the analysts who look at it are, are, are probably right, is going to focus on people in suburbs um, who voted for Trump in 2016, but who didn't in 2020. And, uh, and and again, I think that uh, if, if you look at candidates like Tim Scott, 
and like Glenn Youngkin, President Reagan had a great line, which Mike Huckabee then <laughs> borrowed, but it worked for both of them. Uh, the the line was, "I'm a conservative, but I'm not angry about it." Mm. Uh, no, it's uh, and uh, it was uh, delivered with a great deal of fanfare in both of their cases. Uh, last question about the presidential race, and then I want to uh, get your quick take on uh, on the Oscar race, which uh, might be even more competitive than the presidential race. Obviously, you're a very uh, proud Jew. You're an observant Jew. And uh, a lot of uh, Donald Trump's uh, strength has been with Jewish conservatives. Uh, obviously, his son-in-law, uh, Jared Kushner, one of his closest advisors during his time in the White House, is Jewish. So was his daughter. So were his grandchildren. He has upset a whole bunch of Jewish conservatives with the meeting with Nick Fuentes and Kanye West and some of the other things that he's done and said where do you see Jewish conservatives going in the presidential race? And do you think Trump is going to have a, a real problem with Jewish conservatives next year? I, I think I think he does have a problem. And part of it is, you know, it, it, it began really back in 2016 when he claimed he had never heard of David Duke, when they have tape of him talking about David Duke. And uh, what people wanted was, okay, don't accept the endorsement of David Duke. There were all kinds of other more moderate Republicans who, uh, well, leave aside moderate Republicans, Pat Robertson, of all people, wouldn't support David Duke to be governor of of Indiana, of of Louisiana. Louisiana, Right. Yeah. And you may remember what what he said was, uh, uh, look, this is a race because he was running against Edwin Edwards between uh, a crook and a Nazi. And uh, I, I think it's really important everybody votes for the crook <laughs> uh, because uh, Ed, Edwin Edwards had spent time in jail. Uh, and the idea that uh, President Trump is on that level, he isn't. But it's, uh, it's one of those things where Jewish conservatives are important. I mean, I'm proud to be one. Uh, but let's keep it in perspective. President Trump won 26 percent of the Jewish vote uh, this last time, and he did a little bit better in 2020 than he did in 2016. The the recent Republican who has gotten the highest percentage of Jewish voters was Mitt Romney. And Mitt Romney got 30 percent of Jewish voters, which means he still lost 70-30. That's one of the most common questions I get is why do Jewish people uh, tend to vote for the party that is less pro-Israel. Uh, why is it that people don't rally behind uh, people who who really identify with more traditional Jewish values and certainly with support for Israel? And that, it seems to me, comes from people substituting politics for religion, which right. is a another profound issue and I think a profound problem for this country. Lastly, Michael, uh, I just want to get your take on this and then uh, I have to break. Uh, uh, Tomorrow, Oscar nominations are out. Uh, Irrespective of the likelihood of a film winning, of all the films that are being talked about as Oscar contenders, do you have a favorite? Do you have one that people should absolutely check out, whether or not it's likely to win the Best Picture category? Do you have a personal favorite? I do. Uh, First, one that that is not going to get a nomination, I, I think, for Best Picture, but it deserves one, is a film called Devotion, which is about uh, the first um, uh, black guy who ever became a naval aviator in the Korean War. 
And it's with Jonathan Majors and Glenn Powell, and it is a terrific film. The action scenes are great. Uh, people who loved um, Maverick, Top Gun, and I did, uh, are going to particularly love this movie, which came out just at the end of the year. It's Devotion. Of the films that are likely to be nominated, the one that I would vote for for Best Picture would be The Fablemans, which is uh, first-class Steven Spielberg. It's one of the great movies he's made, and he's made a lot of them. I think that Saving Private Ryan is a great movie, and E.T. is a great movie, and Schindler's List is a great movie, and Lincoln is a great movie, a great historical movie. And I think this one, uh, this one may have a chance to beat out the favorite for the Oscar uh, this year. And the favorite is uh, every, everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, Michael, and, uh, I am going to check out The de- Devotion. It's been on my list for a while. I'm underlining it on my list uh, this week. Thank you so much for the time. I hope we can do this again soon. I will look forward to it. It's always great to talk to you. And uh, you make uh, you make life better for night owls. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Or at least help them get back to sleep, right? 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Michael Medved, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Another selection by Gary Perone. Happy birthday, Gary Perone, a great man, a mentor to me, a close friend, and uh, one of the best baseball executives in America. If I ever owned a baseball team, he would be my first, my first hire. Uh, this is his selection, and honestly, not a bad karaoke singer either. Uh, 800-848-9222. I'm going to get back to your calls in just a moment. You feel free to comment on anything you like. Uh, Matt Blaze is here. Kenneth is here. It's great to have Christian Matos back. And uh, the reason Christian is here is because our producer, Alex Barnard, is uh, not here. I was informed yesterday afternoon that he was not feeling well. And what I told Alex, same thing I would tell anybody that I have to interact with, especially, but anybody, is okay. Feel better. Yes, that is correct. It is interesting to me, though, that this is yet another instance where Alex somehow manages to get sick on a Monday or a Friday. It's always interesting that Alex's illnesses, not always, but often, seem to coincide with having a three-day weekend. It's very interesting to me. You know, he was here Friday. He was telling us how excited he was to do uh, drunken miniature golf. So I'm curious if he That's was right. I forgot about if that. If he was well enough to do that, when did these symptoms start materializing? And uh, it's, is this a case of the Monday flu? Again, I'm not questioning it. I would never question anybody taking a sick day. But it is interesting to me the timing 
of these sick days. I don't know. Once again, adds up to a three-day weekend. Are you skeptical, uh, Matt Place? 100%. You are skeptical. Absolutely. Why are you skeptical? Because, like you just said, how does it happen on the weekend? It's the timing. Every time. It's the timing. That's That's it. Unless the guy is just, I don't know, licking Petri dishes all weekend. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Have you heard about this trend about permanent bracelets? Well, apparently this is all the rage, especially in New York. It started in New York, but it's now being exported elsewhere. And my wife was the first one that told me about this, but it's one of those things. I I don't think this is an instance of synchronicity. I think this is more me being just so oblivious that I didn't start noticing this until my wife told me about it. But Long Islanders are now embracing this trend. New Yorkers are embracing this trend. And people around the country are embracing this trend of permanent bracelets. Newsday last week covered the story of Melissa Iannucci, 27-year-old accountant in Port Washington, who recently treated herself to a little bling, a pair of delicate gold bracelets. She wears one on each wrist. She said they're thin and dainty and go with everything. She's never taken them off and doesn't plan to ever. And these accessories are meant to stay put. Permanent bracelets, which first picked up steam in New York, are now a hot new Long Island trend, one fueled by Instagram and, of course, you guessed it, you said the words before I did, TikTok, as well as word of mouth. These shiny accessories don't come with clasps. Clasps are zapped, excuse me, chains are zapped in place, as in laser welded around wrists or ankles in a quick and painless process that takes a few minutes. So these permanent bracelets are designed to last, but obviously the longevity may vary based on your lifestyle. Melissa Iannucci tells Newsday, I don't have to think about what jewelry I'm putting on. She is among the rising roster of permanent jewelry fans experiencing what they're calling welded bliss. They're very low maintenance and they're very popular as seen by the increase in shops around Suffolk, around Nassau counties, offering them. These forever jeweler, the forever jewelry trend first popped up, they say, in shops and in wrists 
about six years ago in New York City, and now it has taken off. At Hitch, a Babylon lifestyle boutique offering an array of permanent jewelry in 14-karat gold and silver sterling, the shop owner, Joseph DiBello, calls his collection Forever Fused. Here is TikToker Jacqueline Forbes talking about her permanent bracelet. I got another permanent bracelet attached to my wrist. I honestly did not think I was going to love these so much. I have two already. They've been on for almost a year. Headed back to Leah Alexandra. I picked out my bracelet. I ended up going with a thicker chain this time. You can even customize it and add little gems or beads, but I haven't done that yet. We're just making sure it's the perfect fit here. And then here's a little machine that zaps it on. You'll see like a little spark of light. What's nice about this one is that there's no jump ring, so the bracelet has, like, no start and no finish. Also kind of match my nails. Why do you think this trend has exploded? The owner of the shop I just told you about on Long Island said, quote, the reason why it's becoming so trendy right now is because we were lacking that connection for so long being isolated from each other. And now people are coming together and wanting that bond so they can remember they're always connected. What do you think? Have you noticed people doing this, number one? What do you think of the trend, number two? And why do you think this has become all the rage? Number three, 800-848-9222. The process is relatively simple. You choose a chain, silver or gold, the jeweler measures it, and it's laser-welded closed. Along with the convenience of forever jewelry, affordability is another plus. Depending on the quality of silver and gold, pieces typically run between $50 and $150. Joseph Daniel has run the Diamond Boutique in Port Washington for 17 years. He introduced permanent bracelets about two months ago. For me, this is him. It's something new and interesting, adding that the trendy no-hassle pieces caught on overnight. Everyone has been asking for them, girls and grandmothers. They're saying that this is the new friendship bracelet. You ever have a friendship bracelet, uh, and they permanent bracelets are often used to mark special relationships and bonds. Paige Restivo, who runs a uh, shop called Shop Page, very clever, views permanent jewelry as an evolution of friendship bracelets. Embroidery, floss, wristbands made at summer camp and sleepovers, they've now given way to more elegant gold and silver accessories. So Pedro Stevo launched a line of permanent bracelets in November on Black Friday. Business has been booming since then. She's had individuals, mothers, daughters, best friends, couples come in to get zapped. While bold statement necklaces command attention, permanent bracelets send their own subtle messages. So now a lot of you are going to be asking, are are my wife and I going to get these permanent bracelets? The answer is no. This is what my wife told me on this subject, and I agree with her completely. And if you want to comment, you can. 800-848-9222. What she said is this, and I can't differ from her one syllable. As an emotional person, this sounds nice, something to bond people, mother, daughter, spouses, etc. As a realist, this sounds idiotic to me. One needs to remove jewelry for any number of reasons. Having surgery, 
going through the airport or maybe just getting sick of wearing it after a month. What's so hard about having a clasp that allows you to open and close the item instead of destroying it when you need to take it off? I think she's exactly right. 800-848-9222. What do you make of this? The permanent bracelet trend. Do you have one? Would you get one? What do you attribute this trend to? Where do you see this trend going? 800-848-9222. This one woman in the Newsday article, Paige Restivo, says on the subject, to my wife's point, about removal. They're easily, they're also easily cut off with a pair of sharp scissors if needed. Uh, Sam Satchi, owner of long-running SVS Fine Jewelry in Oceanside, he launched a get-linked line of permanent bracelets about a year ago, and he wore one himself until he had to go through a battery of tests for allergies. His doctor asked him to remove it. He took it off in advance, and now he's planning to have it welded back on. His experience reflects a frequently asked question about whether a permanent bracelet will interfere with medical tests. And obviously the answer to that is situations vary. So shop owners advise you to check with your physician in advance before getting one of these permanent bracelets. What do you make of this? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, you look like you were going to say something. No, I was just thinking this is like the dumbest thing I ever heard. Not, you're not a fan. You're not it's so stupid. What is the big deal about having a class? Well, that's what my wife I is don't understand. I, I agree. I and agree. like you just proved, this guy's got to get it cut off and then weld it back on again. Right. And just have it have a class, take it on and off. I mean, I used to wear a gold chain that I never took off, but I could take it off, and I did. Right. And right. now what if I wanted to put it back on? Now I have to get it welded on if I had it cut? It makes no sense. I, I, I completely agree. And I think also this is another example of the role TikTok is playing in creating trends. You know, I have a close friend. She is a TikTok star. And I really have not thought about it, but I should ask her to make listening to this show trendy among all the TikTokoids. Because apparently all you have to do is see something on TikTok and it instantly becomes a trend. You know what the other big trend on TikTok now is? And I've had this on my list for two weeks. I haven't talked about it, but I'll I'll mention it now and then maybe we'll delve into it uh, in the future. Uh, Canned fish, tuna, sardines, all canned fishes. Why? Because they're doing it on TikTok. It is wild that uh, TikTok is having this much of a role. And this much of an influence on our society. All right, what say you? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Trevor is in Yonkers. Hello, Trevor. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. Yeah. Hey, uh, no, I was just thinking, you know, there's they used to have the little military bracelets that you couldn't take off. That was... But thank you. Of course I can't. I appreciate that. You got to recognize that voice by now, Kenneth. All right. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. He said that while I was, had a mouthful of nuts, so I couldn't even cut him off without um, without chewing. So that's what I got. See, I got some trail mix at the top of the hour. I thought I'd be finished with it by now, but, you know, I got in the habit of speaking, and it's not the case. All right. 800-848-9222. You can comment on other issues if you want as well. Tommy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Um, Talking about uh, math and science being racist, of course it's racist. You know, and anything that advances our society is being canceled because they use racism as 
as one of their um, ideologies and to try to divide Americans. And we need to see this for what it is. It's 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 like they're trying to take over America in some way. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but there's a lot of stuff going on in the world, and it's a direct result of these techniques and tactics that the communists and socialist ideologies, Marxism, Maoism, Leninism, talk about in in their ideas on how to take over a culture and society. But even you know, I, even I, Lenin never talked, or even Marx never talked about math being racist. No, they, he didn't talk used, about math. Used, he talks they, about division of division but, of cultures and society. Yeah, but even Marx, and thanks for the call, Tommy, Marx used math to make his point about how few people control so much. So, I mean, that to me is just such a, an idiotic conclusion to draw. 800 not yours, but the people that are saying that math is racist. 800-848-9222. Loretta is in Brooklyn. Hello, Loretta. Hi. Uh, good morning, Frank. Morning. Uh, about the bracelets. Um, I hope it's just a fad. I don't know. Have you heard any other side effects? Uh, about this thing, this permanent thing? Not yet, no. I mean, well, I mean, I, I uh, but that's why I'm putting it out there. I didn't even know these existed until a week or two ago. Oh, I see. So it's a relatively new thing. Well, it started in, in, it, the stores first started selling them about six years ago, but they appear to have dramatically increased in popularity over the last two years. Well, maybe it's just a distraction because people don't know what to do anymore to make themselves feel better, to make themselves feel new and renewed and like they're moving forward with their lives. But I'm an older woman, and I'm thinking, what about swelling in your wrist? Yeah, I wonder the same thing. I hate when you have to go somewhere and you get a uh, like a, a, a plastic wristband. I find that, you know, it's the worst thing in the world to have this thing, I find it uh, it almost kind of cuts off your circulation, and then you have to get a, a knife or a blade. Or One time I had to burn it off one time, and that created quite a situation. I hate these wristbands, so I would not be getting one of these. Thank you, Loretta. 800-848-9222. By the way, I just want to mention this also. Um, <laughs> I don't know how to put this politely, but <clears throat> there is a new European study that found... Here's the good news, I guess, that we are flush with fertilizer. A, this European study found that fertilizer made from, and this is not a joke, and it is interesting, so I do want to mention this. The study found that fertilizer made from human excrement is safe for growing vegetables. And to keep the research extra stinky, they tested this out with, of all things, cabbages. So the researchers concluded that only minuscule amounts of chemicals from medicines that humans might be taking made it into the cabbages, meaning there would be very little risk of pharmaceutical contamination if human waste-based fertilizer is used to grow food. While it may, might give you the ick, the news that we're already producing an abundant fertilizer source comes as the synthetic fertilizer has spiked due to the war in Ukraine's impact on the natural gas market. So this is uh, this is interesting. I mean, I guess this is good news 
that they found that we're all making fertilizer. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Samuel on Staten Island. Hello, Samuel. Yeah, hello. I'd like to just explain why most um, Jews vote Democrat. We're not taking the calculation is that they're all secular Jews. And generally, um, secular people overwhelmingly vote Democrat, right? Right. Um, and also another thing is people don't realize that for generations, for Jewish history, some of the worst people to Jews, especially to religious Jews, have been secular or traitorous Jews. I can give you like Ben-Gurion. He refused to give um, immigrants from Sephardic countries like Yemen unless they cut their pay so the Orthodox Jews we are on their side. So he could brainwash the kids into becoming secular and, and socialist. All right. Well, hey, I'll defer to you, Samuel, on this. You look like you've uh, you sound like you put a lot of uh, thought into that. So I'll defer to you on that one. Uh, the last thing I'll mention, and then I'll get back to your calls. And if you want to weigh in, there's one, two, three, four open lines. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Do you know what Amazon Smile is? Matt Blaze, are you up on Amazon Smile? You're not. No idea. Do you order from Amazon? Yes. So this is interesting. Do, what about you, Kenneth? Never heard of that, but I do use Amazon. Uh, so it's very interesting to me that both of you use Amazon and yet are not familiar with Amazon Smile. Amazon, and look, I hate Amazon as a company, and um, I don't hate them, but they're a monopoly that I wish was broken up and better regulated, and I don't like a lot of the things that they do, their workers. However, over the last 10 years, they have been running this thing called Amazon Smile, which I think is great. It's great. Now, what is it? Everybody, including me, We buy things from Amazon. What do you do if you want to buy something from Amazon? Well, you go to Amazon.com, right? Well, if instead of buying something from Amazon.com, you go to the website smile.amazon.com, then Amazon will kick a portion of your purchase over to a charity of your choice. So it's the same price. The only difference is if you go to smile.amazon.com, they designate and you pick a charity, any charity you want. I use the National Psoriasis Foundation. My wife uses a charity that uh, relates to animals or something. And they designate one half of 1% of the price of the eligible purchases to the charity of your choice. There's no additional cost for consumers to donate. Uh, or I think it's a great thing. You're paying the same amount of money. Why shouldn't you, while you're purchasing, why shouldn't you help out a charity that you really believe in? But it's interesting to me. I've noticed what what we just did with Matt Blaze and Kenneth. I've noticed that borne out, which is I talk to people all the time who use Amazon, and yet they don't know about this Amazon Smile program. And really, you think everybody should know about it because everybody's making, not everybody, but a lot of people are making these Amazon purchases. So, and yet they're not supporting a charity that they could for the same amount of price. Well, it was reported um, on Thursday that Amazon is shutting down. They've had this in place for 10 years. They are shutting down this in-house charity that gave customers this opportunity to direct a small amount of their purchases to a wide range of nonprofits. And, you know, uh, both my wife and I were a little bummed about this. 
because it struck us as a, a pretty good way to, you know, to support a charity that you that you like without spending any extra money. So uh, Amazon Smile is that to Amazon's credit, they are continuing this until February 20th. So that's the cutoff date. If you purchase anything from Amazon through Amazon Smile at smile.amazon.com between now and February 20th, they will still make the donation. And what Amazon is doing, to their credit, and no one's forcing them to do this, but um, what they're doing next year, even though they've discontinued the programming, they're giving the program, they're giving all the charities that they've been supporting a one quarter of what they would be getting this year. So let's say a charity gets a million dollars. Even though they're not doing this program anymore, next year they're going to give that charity a quarter of a million dollars. So that's nice. So they are sunsetting this Amazon Smile program, which allows shoppers to donate a percentage of their purchases to the charity of their choice. Now, this news comes as the company is doing some belt tightening. They're laying off 18,000-plus employees, some of whom received notification by email last week. They say, and we have no idea if they're telling the truth because Amazon is notoriously one of the least transparent companies there are, but Amazon says they donated $449 million to over 1 million charities since this launched 10 years ago. But they say the program was spread too thin and failed to have the desired effect. And a lot of articles that I read, uh, both in Forbes and in NPR, they have said that uh, the juice might not be worth the squeeze here. In NPR reported that last year, charities received an average of less than $230. Now, a lot of small organizations say that it helped. The Squirrelwood Equine Sanctuary tweeted that the $9,300 plus it received through Amazon made a huge difference. The Cat's Meow, which I'm not familiar with, They tweeted that the $4,000 that they received covered expenses when donations fell short. Now, others are saying that Amazon could have done a lot more. A few years ago, there was a journalist named Mark Gunther that pointed out Amazon Smile only gave 0.5%, so a dime for a $20 purchase, and only when shoppers remembered to use the right URL. Like, for instance... If Matt Blaze is going to Amazon.com and I'm going to Smile.Amazon.com, would it really kill them if on his $20 they gave a dime to the charity of his choice? So in 2015, case in point, the Amazon Smile Foundation donated $12.8 million. That is .00012% of Amazon's $99.1 billion in retail sales. So... Customers can still donate to their favorite charities until the program ends. They could buy items from their wish list, or they can obviously donate without Amazon. But meanwhile, Amazon says they're going to continue to invest in areas where they can make meaningful change, including local nonprofits, perhaps conveniently for Amazon, their own charitable efforts like Amazon Future Engineer, which funds computer science education. So um, I thought that was, uh, on the one hand, I get that people are saying that sometimes the charities were spending more money on marketing this than they were getting back in donations. But I think it's a shame to see it go like this. So if you want to comment, you can. Um, permanent bracelets, human fertilizer, and the demise of Amazon Smile. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your call straight ahead. 
the other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Best of everything, that's what I wish you all. Best of everything, a Rembrandt on your wall. A yacht that wins you cups, skateboards with style and speed. Show dogs or loving pups, pride of the pound or the I'll be honest with you. I'm a Sinatra fan. I don't know that I've ever heard this song. This is uh, tremendous. And I like that it's old Sinatra. I love old Sinatra when his voice changed a little bit. This is the best of everything. This is the Gary Perone playlist in honor of his birthday to ensure that uh, I don't have to get him a gift. We're playing bumper music that he has selected. 800-848-9222. I, had, I saw Gary, he and his wife Elena came over on uh, Saturday night. I had a kind of an impromptu giant game watching party, and it became really like a Super Bowl party, honestly. I was unsure, honestly, until the day before how many people were going to come because almost everybody said the same thing. Oh, sounds good, I'll try to make it. Now, what does that mean? Sounds good, I'll try to make it. So as of the day before, I could, I could tell, and some people didn't even respond. That there was going to be anywhere from two people to 30 people coming. And my wife was out. She uh, she went out to do something with my sister. And I thought, okay, well, all right, I'm going to get food for 30 then. And then, obviously, when I was getting food for 30, I'm now all of a sudden panicked that there might not be people to eat all this food. So I start inviting more people. It becomes a, you know, kind of a cycle. And um, the, obviously, it was... Such a shame that the Giants didn't make this game more competitive. It was pretty clear early on that this game was going to be a debacle. And congratulations to those of you that are Eagles fans. Um, my buddy Anthony Magliaca is an Eagle fan. Uh, AC Mike Lopez is an Eagle fan. God bless you. Well-deserved. Look, they're a great team. You could take umbrage with the Eagles fans themselves. But the, as a football team, the Eagles are great. It, I think in all, there were about 27 people that came. And again, I don't have a big house or a big television. And a big thank you to my co-brother-in-law, James, and my brother-in-law, Josh, who made the trip all the way out from Long Island to be there. I mean, from eastern Long Island. Uh, Gary Korb coming all the way from Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, Tom Brodo coming all the way from New Jersey. But, um, you know, my wife, I'd say if you were to ask her top ten problems with me, it's this, is that I invite too many people to things. And this is a problem my siblings have with me as well. At my sister's party, the counterparty that was taking place to this, she and my wife and my brother said they're going to stage an intervention to get me to stop inviting so many people to things. So meanwhile, the food was great. I had a good time. You know, the shame of it is um, I was happy to see everyone. And I, I'm a more the merrier kind of a person. And I like to connect people that may not know each other or that know one another but haven't seen one another in a while. But my wife always says, and I get what she's saying, that 
when you have that many people at a gathering that you're sacrificing quality for quantity, right? Instead of getting quality time with folks, you're just – it's impossible with that many people. Now, everyone was really watching the Giant game anyway, so we would stare at the television and you know drink a beer and eat a sandwich. But it was, uh, it was a great party, I thought. A couple of the drawbacks, aside from the quality of the Giants' play – is that uh, we broke a chair. Look, this chair, I think, was on its last legs anyway. It's one of those chairs that constantly always needed to be tightened. And so one of the fellows that came, he broke it. So that was pretty high up on the things that a list of things that my wife was annoyed about. So I said we'd buy some more chairs. Fine, okay. Uh, And I'll put them together, right? Uh, The other thing was the – I forgot – Tom Brodo was kind enough to bring a crostata. You ever have a crostata? It's delicious. It's like a raspberry pastry. Uh, But I forgot to uh, put out dessert afterwards. I was so dejected uh, by the quality of the Giants' play. And, um, you know, so I was so tired, honestly, from hosting everybody and running around that I forgot to put out dessert. So my apologies to Tom and another fellow named Tom, Tommy Barlotta, who brought dessert that I forgot to put out. Um, Carmine was good. He slept pretty much the whole time, and uh, I'm sure there was a lot of noise, but we have a white noise machine in his room that's supposed to drown out a lot of that. He did get up briefly around 1130, and he was crying, and I went up, gave him a little bit of a bottle. He went right back to sleep, so he was very good. And, uh, oh, the other drama. So my wife got home around 1.30 in the morning. And she, uh, thankfully, everybody was gone by then. And I was cleaning up and doing that whole thing. Because if people were still there by the time that she came home, she would have just been apoplectic. But she was saying the next day as she's continuing the cleanup, and she's one of the great cleaners of all time, right? So every day she's vacuuming, she's sweeping. She is a cleaner's cleaner. If she ever doesn't make it as a writer, I can absolutely see her uh, doing really well in the world of cleaning. So in her office, she sees that the curtains are closed. And she asked me, well, what was going on in this office? Why are the curtains closed? I said, I don't know. I didn't really notice anyone going in there. And I said, and big mistake on my part, I said, is it possible that you closed these curtains before you left and you didn't realize it? You would have thought I accused her of stealing, of kidnapping the Lindbergh baby. So uh, she said, no, forget about that. That didn't happen. I said, you sure? Oh, forget about that. That prompted a big argument. It was the hours of hostility yesterday in the Morano household because of that. So it led to this big mystery of why the curtains were closed in her office. And it got, you know, I, I don't blame her. She was rightly irked because if someone's going in her office and I don't know who it was, what else are they doing in there, right? You don't know if they're taking some, I mean, not that we have anything valuable in there, but uh, you don't know if they're going through her things or rummaging through. So she was annoyed with that. Turned out we are friends with um, a couple that is going through some IVF treatment and they went in there and closed the curtains because one of the people in the couple had to give the other person some injections, and they wanted to make sure the curtains were closed. So uh, she accepted that as an explanation. And uh, honestly, there were very few guests that uh, wouldn't leave. And again, I would host these people all night long. I'm a sociable fellow, but uh, when it comes to um, when it comes to my wife, she differs on that one. So th- that's that. I would call it a wildly 
successful party, wildly successful party, even though maybe I'll admit that there were too many people. And I think it's probably time for me to invest in a bigger television set. Apparently, there's some very good prices on television sets now. And look, my television set is fine. I've had it for a while. And you're watching television, it's fine. But if you're having 30, 40 people in, maybe it's a, a different ball game, right? So um, it is what it is. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on uh, anything that we are talking about. Let me say hello to Lou on Long Island. Hello, Lou. Yes, uh, good morning. Uh, these uh, forever bracelets, you can't get an MRI if you have a forever bracelet. They're going to have to cut it off. Right. Well, apparently there are a number of procedures that uh, cause you to have to remove these. And, uh, you know, I think to uh, Matt Blaze's point, he was saying, you know, what's the point? Right. Why not just get a, a chain that has a, a clasp on it? Right. What do you really gain from having something that's laser welded on? I get that. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Hannah is in the Bronx. Hello, Hannah. Yes, hi. Do you remember me? I'm the one with the 13 cats. I was talking about. Yes, absolutely. I, hi, how could I forget? How are you? Great. Um, I'm glad you had a good time with your party. Thank uh, you. The reason why I was calling, because I know you're talking about the fertilizer. And for the past two years, you know, when we had COVID, I watched a movie that my mom reminded me to watch. It's called Sowing Green. Have you ever seen that? Absolutely. Charlton Heston. Yes. Yes. And it's about... You know, eventually, I don't want to spoiler alert, but we find out they were eating people, taking people, and making them out of making oil. Remember? So, Vividly, you know, yes. I just feel like the society is like now the environment is getting so bad, and the fertilizer, you know, like we have like stuff that we don't even know what to imagine. I'm like scared about this human manure used for that desperation to people. It's like almost cannibalism. You know? Well, I don't I wouldn't go that far, Hannah. I mean, look, they're mm. using fertilizer to help grow uh, vegetables and crops and things like that. So, I mean, is it really that much better if the fertilizer that's used is chemicals in the form of synthetic fertilizer or from animal excrement? I don't know. Right. So I was glad that they did this study. And thanks for the call. The call, Hannah. Good luck with the cats. I was glad that they did this study. I was glad that they found that what we're putting in our bodies as humans is not manifesting itself into the vegetables that are being fertilized with the human excrement. I think that's a, I think that's a positive thing. 800-848-9222. Rick is in Elmwood Park. Hello, Rick. Hey, I think your buddy Michael Medved might be working for the elites. He sounds like he's covering for them saying that there are no elites trying to control everything in the world. Has he missed out on the Davos thing that just went on? You'd have to call Michael and ask him. Does does he? Can, do you know for if he believes in the global warming climate change scam? I, I have no idea, Rick. Right? I, I I can only tell you what I believe. TJ is in Manhattan. Hello, TJ. Hi. How are you? Great. Thank you. Oh, listen, this is the first time I've heard your show, and I have to say, I really like you. You really keep things honest, and oh. um, I will tell you this. Thank you. I'm part- I am partially blind, so I have a kind of a different perspective on things. Let, let me tell you guys something. I'm 51 years old, and when I went to school, the teachers took their time with you. They showed you why 
when you had a math problem, what gave you that answer? They used different examples with you. They made little stories so that you understood why 5 plus 5 equals 10, you know, different things like that. The quality of education from the late 70s, early 80s, and 90s has truly changed. You used to be able to stay after school and learn just as much then as you did in the class. And the things that they're talking about, math being racist, math is not racist. There's three basic things to math. Reading comprehension, your ability to understand scenarios, and most importantly, the time that you spend on each problem. You have to be able to show your work. The kids, I feel so bad for the kids today versus the kids that grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s because they would run rings around them. They, everything is either look up Alexa or Siri or everything, not even going to libraries anymore and actually understanding how to research a problem or research a book. You know, those things, those are qualities that you can't get rid of just because things are faster now. And the kids are really suffering. I feel so bad for Florida. I really do because they're missing out on a lot of great education, a lot of teachers, that are, I mean, people are fleeing the education right now. I was in the, the L.A. Unified School District because I grew up in Los Angeles for 28 years. And let me tell you something. Being a disabled student is hard. It is, it is racism. Racism and I are old friends. It was just that bad, okay? When they talk about racism today, they have no idea what that even means. I'll, I'll show you a quick example. My last name was Jones at the time, okay? So at that time, when they did seating charts, they did it based on your last name. If you sat too far from the board, in my case, I was what you considered um, a high partial, but I was also somebody who saw things close up better than I do far away. Mm -hmm. So I was a little bit too far from the board. I walked up to my teacher after class and I said, listen, I know we're seated alphabetically, but I'm really having a hard time with the board. Could I either, A, get someone to help me write the notes, or B, can I, you know, right. move Sounds reasonable. to a better chair? Her exact words to me, and I'll use the letter to this, and just be glad you're in the class at all. You should be sitting in the back anyway. Wow. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Okay. My response to her is I slapped her. And even though she got fired and I didn't get suspended, thank God, the thing was I let her know, listen, it's not, it's not what people call you. Everybody, people get called names all the time. But this, this is the reason why the mass shootings and all the things that are going on right now, because they don't talk about it. Mm. It's the verbal abuse. TJ, I, 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 have to, I have to end it there. I really appreciate the call, and I really appreciate you mentioning that example because that's an example of real-life racism and things that should be called racist, whereas math, calling math racist, I think to underscore what I said earlier, and thanks for the call, it, it, it really removes the sting of what something that is genuinely racist is. Because if everything's racist, nothing is racist, right? 800-848-9222. We will continue with your calls in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 
It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Classic song selection by the great Gary Perone. And, um, you know, uh, this is a wonderful song. And I'm, I'm hoping to see that Neil Diamond musical, which I'm told is, is great. Neil Diamond has given a couple of explanations as to what the inspiration of this song was. The most common is that it's based on Caroline Kennedy. And he said that repeatedly, right, that uh, she was 11 when this song came out. Um, and he sang this at her 50th birthday. But about nine years ago, Neil Diamond said the song was about his then-wife, Marsha. But he needed a three-syllable name to fit the melody. So whether it's about his ex-wife Mar- or his, his then-wife, Marsha, or whether it's about uh, Caroline Kennedy, you be the judge. It is a terrific song nonetheless. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Good news is we have made a trip to the post office, and we have a stack of mail that we are going to be going through tomorrow. We may allow a whole hour for mail tomorrow because there's a ton of mail here. If you want to write to me, you can. Frank at wabcradio.com. That's Frank at wabcradio.com. I'm just going to share one email I got from you, with you. This is from Bella, who writes, "Hi, Frank." I have really enjoyed the racket report conversations and your show, of course, and would love it if you could have guests on to discuss the lives of Arnold Rothstein and Meyer Lansky. I look forward to listening. Thank you, Bella. I'm working on both of those, actually, Bella. It's funny that you mentioned that. One of the best books that I've read on uh, on uh, Arnold Rothstein was written by a guy that's been a guest on this show repeatedly, David Pietruza. Great historian. For people that don't know Arnold Rothstein, he was a character on the show Boardwalk Empire. But he's the man that fixed the 1919 World Series. Probably one of the best-known uh, professional gamblers of all time, right? And uh, had no problem dealing with organized crime figures and the like, and did frequently. But if you ha- I'm getting ready to record something very big this week on the Racket Report. But if you have not heard the latest edition of the Racket Report. My guest was Victoria Gotti Sr., the widow of the Dapper Don, John Gotti, the Teflon Don, whatever you want to call it, probably the most famous gangster of the last 50 years. 
Imagine what it's like being married to that person. So I asked Mrs. Gotti, I said, look, there's not a day that goes by, even though your husband's dead 20 years, there's not a day that goes by where his name does not appear in some sort of a news article or on TV or in a movie. What is it about the media's obsession with John Gotti? Listen to her response. This is from the latest edition of The Racket Report. Why do you think um, that the media and the public are still so obsessed, whether they love him or whether they hate him? People are still so interested in your, your, your family and your husband in particular. Why, this many years after he's gone, is there still this media obsession about him? Frank, he was one of a kind. He was, and he was correct. You'll never see another person like him. He was a bad boy in a lot of ways, and he was not your conventional hero, but he was to us. Very interesting response. If you haven't heard it yet, um, you can go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. It's redapplepodcastnetwork.com and just look for the racket report. Or you can search iTunes or Google Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and just search the racket report. And if you hit the subscribe button, then you'll automatically get all the latest examples of the racket report downloaded right to your mobile phone or your iPod. And if you already subscribe or even if you don't, if you could go on iTunes and find the Racket Report and leave us a nice review, a five-star review, along with maybe a nice little comment, that'll help more people discover the podcast, which we would certainly appreciate. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Neil on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. You know, uh, I was thinking this afternoon, after all the years of following you and listening to all your shows and being entertained so well, how do I pay it forward? And you gave me a perfect idea before when you're talking about the human estimate. I think tomorrow, Frank, I'm going to I'm going to grow you some beefsteak tomatoes. And I don't want you to hog them all, Frank. I want you to share them with Matt and Alex and uh, and Kenny because, let's face it, your show is just terrific, Frank. And it's a good way to pay it forward. That's very kind of you, Neil. I, I appreciate that. Uh, thank you. And uh, we'll wash them thoroughly, right? I mean, just as we would with conventional fertilizer, right? 800-848-9222. By the way, uh, just mentioning this uh, giant game that I had people over for on Saturday, I didn't even realize it. But my friend John Tobacco mentioned to me at some point, hey, you know, Frank, we have zero current political party chairman but five former chairmen in the room. And sure enough, he was right. In the borough that I live in, there were in the room five former chairmen of local political parties. You had Brendan Lantry, Vinnie Ignizio, uh, Anthony Reinhardt, all of whom are former county chairmen of the Republican Party. You had Michael Cusick, who was the former chairman up until a week or two ago of the Democratic Party. And then you had me who's the former county chairman of the Independence Party and the Reform Party. So we all took a um, a picture, the five former chairs, and I posted it to Facebook. If you want to see it, I'm wearing my Steve Young jersey, and I made some comments about what it's like to be a former chairman and why anybody that knows anything about politics would say it's the worst job being a current chairman, not a former chairman, uh, in politics. If you want to see it, just go to my Facebook page. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. It's Facebook.com slash M O R A N O fan. Charlie's in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Charlie. 
Hello, Frank. So you were talking about these parties and soirees you throw every now and again. I was wondering what tips, what do you do if you have guests that don't leave? And I want to share some tips and some thoughts I have. You know, I, I am the worst, Charlie, because I sit there and entertain them. The the My only strategy for having a guest that, uh, you know, that won't leave is I, I happen to, once it gets past one thirty in the morning or so, I happen to have a wife that is very good at audibly sighing and walking around and looking annoyed when guests won't leave. And at some point, even the most obstinate, obstinate guest will, when she's walking around sighing and cleaning with people still over, they'll kind of take the hint and realize it's time to go. Well, I have three tips real quick for your audience listening and it'll do is number one, there are some of them they can't do that I have specialties. So I walk around with my uniform on. I was a children before I'm retired, so I don't work anymore with the empty holster. No, no gun in my guns are kept away so safely, but I have the holster, the empty holster on it. Now that lets people in, in, in my place know that I'm a gun owner, so that they, they take that seriously, but not everybody has that. The other thing I have is I have the German Shepherd there, the Gene. Train German Shepherd, I just shake the collar, shake the leash rather, and I'll just start to growl. So that that's another people that gives a hint out. But if people don't have that, here's the thing that always works. I want all your listeners to remember this. Under the kitchen sink, always keep some bed bug spray. So <laughs> you have people who don't leave, you bring out the bed bug spray, you bring them over and you start spraying around them, and you just start talking to yourself, listen. I'm infested with bed bugs. I've had this drug problem. What, do you, what do you do? What do you recommend doing? And people take a look at that, right? And they, I said, I guess I should have told the people that before I invited them over. I said, what do you think? And ask them their opinion. And they will get up, get the hell out of there. They won't come back again. They'll tell other people about that. But, but, but that gets people out of your house, out All of your All right. Uh, thank you. The, the, the bed bugs break. I don't know about that, that one, Charlie. I don't, th- I don't think, you know, I, I'm not into lying to guests, really. I, I just, uh, again, I'll, I'll take my annoyed wife uh, technique. Uh, it is what it is. 800-848-9222. By the way, um, this was yet another weekend where I was deluged with emails complaining about other people in the Facebook group. Guys, so we have this Facebook group. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be an opportunity for listeners to talk about the show, share articles they may like, talk with one another about different things we've done on the show. It's supposed to be an enjoyable enterprise. And yet the amount of people that are upset with other members of the group and then write to me asking me to take some sort of an action. This person called this person a name or this person's destructive or whatever. Guys, you can't run to the teacher every time you have an issue with someone. You're going to have to either work this out with, you know, one another or do what I do. If someone's annoying you, just block them. Just block them. You know, uh, John from Brooklyn, great guy. I've met him in person many times. Great guy. He would email me five, six, seven times a day about the war in Ukraine and how I'm all wrong. You know what I did after the fifth day? I just blocked him. And now I have no idea. He could be sending me 20 emails a day. I have no idea. And God bless him. Uh, But it doesn't affect me at all. And if you don't like what someone is saying, just block them. There's no need to complain to me or appeal to Matt Blaze. 
because I promise you, unless nothing will come of it. You got to work it out on your own, folks. If you want to see what we're talking about, join the Facebook group, especially if you're interested in being a productive member of the Facebook group. Just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Moreno. Commendations coming up in a moment. Your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. By the way, I mentioned that uh, crostata that uh, Tom Brodo brought to our house, which is just a delightful little, uh, you know, a, a, it's like an, a, a, I don't know how, you, it's like a pie almost. It's a like, kind of a baked tart, um, very big in Naples. It's delicious. So I, di- we didn't, you know, both my wife and I are trying to take off some weight, so we don't want it lying around the house because it's so good. But we did have one piece yesterday heated up a little bit. It's terrific. So I brought it in and I put it in the kitchen. So I'm hoping people will try it. And uh, Matt Blaze, I know you're dieting as well. You got to try one piece of this. Did you try one piece of it? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Is that good? Yes. It's All very right. good. I could try a but little the, piece. For optimal results though, throw it in the toaster oven for a minute. Warm it up. Warm it up. That's okay. my recommendation. I will try. My recommendation. And if we can, Kenneth, and, and there's no dairy in here, so I know you should be okay, but if we can maybe bring a, a heated slice down to Omar at the front desk, who's always so good to us, maybe we can work on that or outsource it to Christian if possible. I'll I'll avoid taking a break until he's back, you know, because Omar, he's a great guy. And I didn't tip him so for Christmas and uh, – I always try to keep him in mind. I always try to give him a slice of pizza or a slice of whatever else we have. So we want to keep Omar in mind. Uh, you got to try this crostata, Kenneth. No dairy in it. So I will check it out. Thank, Thank you. you, Frank. And um, and Christian, who's back in for Alex, will certainly as well. All right. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Without further ado, it is time for me to give a pat on the back to... Some people that have done something commendable. That's why they are recipients of The Other Side of Midnight presents Commendations. I want to give a commendation to the state of Texas, namely the people that run the prison system in the state of Texas, because they are embarking on a very worthy goal and something that ought to be a model for every state in this country. They are going to be making a concerted effort to improve the quality of food in Texas prisons. This is so important. The quality of food in prison is non-existent. It's awful. It's awful. And there's no reason that people, just because they've committed a crime, should have to endure eating uh, slop upon slop. You know, a hot dog with a tortilla, a cup of mush... And a raw potato is what you'd get for breakfast or lunch. Then for dinner, maybe you get a hot dog with a tortilla, a cup of mush, and a raw potato. Well, the Texas prison system has a new goal, 
serving what they describe as slightly more edible food. As part of this long-term strategic plan, the Texas Corrections Agency aims to do away with the worst of prison fare, the meager and sometimes moldy brown bag meals served during lockdowns, which occur regularly and can last for hours. Though lockdown meals have generated complaints for years, the public didn't get a look at how awful they really were until about three years ago, when the Marshall Project and Hearst Newspapers published images of these meals captured with contraband phones. Afterward, the food improved in some prisons, but only for a short time. Now, the Texas Corrections Agency is making plans for more permanent improvements by starting a new culinary trading program in hopes of doing away with cold meals together. So I say to the Department of Criminal Justice in Texas, more power to you. I hope you're successful, and uh, I'm sure the prisoners will appreciate this. I want to commend Stuart Grant. This is my kind of 90-year-old. This is a 90-year-old woodcutter who built his own hobbit house. And he revealed that he never watched The Lord of the Rings. But he nevertheless lives in this hobbit house almost completely off the grid despite being nearly 90 years old. He's a great-grandfather, Stuart Grant. He moved into this cottage he bought as a wreck with no roof and no doors back in 1984 while he was renovating a house. But he found it was so satisfying doing all the do-it-yourself work on this quirky building, which dated back 200 years, that he decided to make it his home. He doesn't have a mobile phone or use the Internet. He doesn't drive due to his age. But he loves getting out and meeting people, which is good, considering he's been inundated with all sorts of visitors to his home after his house was posted on a French tourist board's recommendation for North Scotland. He says he hasn't watched Lord of the, Way- Lord of the Rings. He worked as a joiner and a carpenter for decades. He says it's just a coincidence that his front door is almost the same shape and same kind of wood. So... Tourists are coming by the busload and meeting Stuart Grant. I give him a lot of credit. I also want to give credit to Gabriel Lovett. Gabriel Lovett is a an alumnus of Florida A&M University and the owner of Tasty Love Food Truck. This is my kind of food truck owner. He is helping fund scholarships for students at his alma mater. He's on a one-man mission to help his local community and his alma mater through food. He was on Good Morning America last week, and he said he's been around cooking his whole life, and he recently discovered a way to to pair his passion with philanthropy. He tells Good Morning America, I had nothing but cooking jobs going through my adolescence. And in 2018, he saw the south side of Tallahassee needed more food options with a millennial twist. So he created a foundation to offer two $1,000 scholarships per year to deserving, involved students and announced the first winner in tandem with the Tasty Love Grand Opening last week. And um, this is great. I I think it's a great thing. This is a guy who's funding the scholarship with earnings from his business, promoting the scholarship opportunity on social media. I think it's wonderful. Maybe you help people pay for their education a little bit and um, provide some great food in the meantime. 
This is kind of what Amazon Smile should be if they weren't working so hard to keep it a secret from everybody. I want to commend Providence Day School. There's a dog by the name of Bentley in North Carolina. A nice golden retriever. And apparently as friendly as can be. And this dog, unfortunately, lost his leg to cancer. Last year, he's eight years old last year. Um, and they had to amputate his right front leg. After the surgery, though, and just my, the, these animal stories just make my heart melt. Sometimes it's difficult for me to even make it through these, but I, I think it's important for me to commend the students at uh, Providence Day School. Um, after the surgery, Bentley was still very much himself, chasing after tennis balls and sticks, just a lot slower with one less leg. So... Now he's all smiles because he heard he's going to be getting a prosthetic leg. He, um, Liberto, a math teacher at Providence Day School, realized that some of her students could help Bentley. The students, listen to this, the students in the school's 3D printing class got the assignment and got to work. And despite this being a major upgrade to their current projects and anything they were working on, I mean, they were working on simple stuff like keychains, but they were able to come up with a 3D printed leg. The, the, the students here, Brandon Hollis and his classmates, they created a harness and a prosthetic leg after meeting Bentley. And uh, this is just wonderful. This dog is now cancer-free, and he still gets to use the new harness and temporary leg. So um, they're saying, pardon the pun, that Bentley has gotten a new leash on life. Thank you. I want to also commend Thurman Thomas and his wife, Patty, uh, along with a local Buffalo man by the name of Jay Wyvie. I don't know if you remember Thurman Thomas, but he was a Buffalo Bills. I think he was a running back. Great player for the Buffalo Bills back in the day. You know, I used to really root for the Buffalo Bills and the 49ers. I was sorry to see the Bills lose yesterday, but I'm pleased that the 49ers are still in it. I'm, I'm supporting them now. Um, and this fellow, Jay Wyvie, became known as Merry Christmas Jay after he rescued 24 people during the deadly snowstorm in Buffalo last month. Well, you know what happened Friday? He was surprised with Super Bowl tickets by Bill's legend Thurman Thomas. Thurman Thomas and his wife Patty presented Jay Wyvie with two tickets to next month's Super Bowl in Arizona on behalf of the Bills and Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield. So on Christmas Eve, this fella, Merry Christmas Jay, broke a window of a school while seeking shelter from the blizzard after spending a night sleeping in his truck with two strangers to stay alive. Once inside... He went back out into the storm in search of others who needed help, including seven elderly people who were stranded in their cars, and he single-handedly brought them to safety inside the school. And he earned the moniker Merry Christmas Jay after he left a note for the school explaining why he broke in. This is what the letter said. To whom it may concern, I'm terribly sorry about breaking the school window and for breaking in the kitchen. Got stuck at 8 p.m. Friday and slept in my truck with two strangers just trying not to die. There were seven elderly people also stuck 
and out of fuel. I had to do it to save everyone and get them shelter and food and a bathroom. Merry Christmas. And he signed the note, Jay. So the local police department shared this letter on social media, along with the images of uh, Jay Wyvie, writing that they would like to find him to thank him for saving all these people's lives. So after receiving these tickets, Wyvie said he can't believe the amount of people who've reached out to him, including thank you letters from Australia. So I know we have some listeners in Australia, so if you're one of those folks that has uh, written to him uh, to say thank you, good for you. I want to commend Buzz Aldrin. I love Buzz Aldrin. I love everything about this guy. I love his toughness. I love his brilliance. I love his boldness. I love that he's still as committed to the space program as ever. I love that he is leading the mission, or leading the movement, I should say, to go to Mars. And that's why I am wishing him the very best of luck. Because he got married a fourth time at the age of 93 years old. He got married on his 93rd birthday. Buzz Aldrin, who was, of course, one of the pilots on the legendary Apollo 11 space flight and was one of the first two people to walk on the moon. And the former pilot said that he and his new wife, Anka Fower, were as excited as eloping teenagers getting married on his 93rd birthday. His wife, Dr. Fower, 63 years old, has a Ph.D. in chemical engineering and uh, is the executive vice president of Mr. Aldrin's company, Buzz Aldrin Ventures. He is uh, an incredible man, and I'm wishing him many, many years of happiness and uh, good health. I must also commend sunsets. Yes, sunsets. Apparently, watching sunsets and sunrises actually improves your health. That's the word, according to researchers from the University of Exeter. Their study finds that watching sunsets in the evening or the sunrise in the morning promotes increased perceptions of natural beauty and an uptick in feelings of awe. Now, I don't, because I'm not up when the sun rises anymore... I, not generally anyway, my friend A.C. Mike used to, you could search him on Facebook, A.C. Mike Lopez. I don't know if he still does this, but he used to post a live stream every morning of the sun rising. So um, I guess he found some value to that. But uh, this, the authors of this study opted to utilize the latest in computer graphics to show over 2,500 participants' images of both urban and natural environments. And whenever these images included a sunrise or a sunset, the group considered them to be substantially more beautiful in comparison to the same shot seen under sunny conditions at any other time of day. Notably, the study also found sunrises and sunsets are capable of triggering significant boosts in people's feelings of awe. So this research basically indicates that these sunsets and sunrises do play a positive role in increasing your and improving your mental health, which I think is great news. I must also commend... Let's see here. Viagra. That's right. Viagra, which is generally known these days as something that uh, may work to... Improve your libido. Well, uh, Viagra 
is something that has now been demonstrated to improve your heart health. And listen to this. Some new studies show, and it kind of makes sense because it's all about improving blood flow. But um, this new study shows that Viagra and Cialis users are 25% less likely to suffer early death. And they had 17% lower incidence of heart failure. So Viagra is linked to a much lower risk of death in men. So obviously I'm sure there's more studies to be looked at on this front. But uh, if you're a fella and you've ever been considering taking Viagra, Viagra, not only might it help you be more virile, it might help you live a little longer. So that's certainly good news for uh, anybody that takes Viagra. And if you don't take Viagra, maybe you should start. Um, I want to commend Monica Kelsey. Monica Kelsey is the founder of something called Safe Haven Baby Boxes. Do you know what this is? I mean, it's sad that we're in an era where we need these things, but we do. She founded this thing which is a device that lets people give up an unwanted infant anonymously. And last week, and I got to thank my co-brother-in-law James for bringing the story to my attention. Last week, a newborn was surrendered to Florida's only baby box. It was the first time anyone has used the baby box since organizers placed it at in an Ocala fire station over 2 years ago. This is what she said when we launched this box In Florida, Monica Kelsey did, the founder of this. I knew it wasn't going to be an if, it was going to be a matter of when. This doesn't come as a surprise. So, Monica Kelsey was also abandoned as an infant. And she founded Safe Haven Baby Boxes eight years ago. And this program offers a way to anonymously surrender an infant to the authorities. The organization launched the first baby box in the U.S., in Indiana in 2016, and the organization received its first surrendered newborn in 2017. There are now at least 134 baby boxes scattered across fire stations and hospitals, and there are plans to establish more baby boxes in Indiana, which already has 92 of them, the most of any state. Now, baby boxes remain controversial. Baby boxes are not a new invention. She, Monica Kelsey, said she was inspired to start her organization after she spotted one in South Africa. And while advocates, and I happen to be one, argue that baby boxes help save people's lives, critics say the practice creates a method for people to surrender children without the parents' consent. I hear that, but uh, I still think it's a net positive. I have to commend my cousin, Frankie Benigno. Frankie Benigno is my second cousin. We're both um, uh, great-grandchildren of uh, my, our grandma, Katie. Well, our great-grandma, Katie, and her husband, Frank. So I guess indirectly we were both named in part for Frank. So we're both um, – gr- we have the same set of great-grandparents, and I'm commending Frankie, great young man, He is now officially a New York City firefighter. Isn't that something? This is a young man, very bright young man, gave up a rather lucrative career in the world of finance in order to risk his life and serve the city of New York 
as a firefighter. And um, I couldn't be prouder of him. I think he's going to be a great firefighter. And if any of uh, his chums in the firehouse this week hear this program, be sure to give him a hard time. Uh, I have to give a commendation to the City of London. A new report from Resonance Consultancy ranked the top 100 cities in the world, according to U.S. travelers. And they found that U.S. travelers ranked London as the number one city in the country. And finally... I want to give a commendation to everyone celebrating Lunar New Year. Now, I realize this is mostly a uh, an Asian holiday, but I think this is great. Um, Lunar New Year festivities vary across all sorts of cultures, all sorts of regions in East Asian and Southeast Asian cultures. And this year, yesterday, marked the first day of the first new moon in the lunisolar calendar. And the imminent arrival of spring and the start of the year of the rabbit, which is the fourth sign in the 12-year Chinese zodiac cycle. I, um, I love the Chinese. I love Chinese food. I love Chinese history. I love the Chinese culture. And I love Asian people in general. Now, um, as Jerry Seinfeld uh, asked the question, if I like their race, how can I be racist? Maybe I should not make such a broad generalization, but... I am very into Chinese culture, and I love Lunar New Year. There was one, there was only one negative aspect of Lunar New Year, and that was in my heyday of going to Wohop in Chinatown, which my friend Vic and I used to go to every day. And Chinese New Year was the one week a year where the main original Wohop was closed. So we'd have to go upstairs to 15 Mott Street instead of the original to 17 Mott Street. And Anybody that knows anything about Chinatown knows that when it comes to Wohop, 15 is just, uh, it pales in comparison. That is the lone drawback of Lunar New Year. I love everything about it. I love the dragons. I love the celebrations. love the food. It's a wonderful, wonderful time to celebrate a new year, in this case being the year of the rabbit. All right. Comments, thoughts, uh, open phones, no more guests for the rest of the program. Your opportunity to be heard on any subject. 800-848-9222, 1-800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. This is Motley Crue, Kickstart My Heart. This is not a Gary Perone selection, but this is a selection from another gentleman 
celebrating a birthday today, and that is the uh, inimitable Corey Windelspect. Now, uh, Corey Windelspect, he's been a guest on this show. He's a great guy. Um, his girlfriend, by the way, he's the one that got them to change the decorations at the Holland Tunnel. And we talked about this widely at the time. And you can go on the YouTube and see some of the interviews that I've done with him over the years and hear his whole story. I'm actually in an upcoming documentary about his whole situation. And he's a great guy. And when you meet him and his girlfriend, Amy, who makes the best dog food I've ever tasted, she, the two of them were in here. Um, the first thing you think is, Amy looks like a model. I think she was a model. You think, oh, my goodness. What is she doing with him? She is way too hot to ever be with him. But then when you talk to Corey Windelspect or you read any of his Facebook statuses, you realize how seriously brilliant and funny Corey Windelspect is. You know who's become a huge fan of Corey Windelspect just based on his Facebook musings? My wife, Rachel. And um, I, uh, I said that... Uh, Oh, Corey Windelspeck's not coming to the party because he's got a birthday celebration. His mom's in town or something. And Rachel says, oh, of course, the one person that I want to see isn't coming. Right. So that's the kind of enthusiasm these Corey Windelspeck uh, Facebook statuses engender. If you want to find him on Facebook, um, you can search him, uh, Corey. And then his uh, last name is uh, W-I-N-D-E-L-S-P. E-C-H-T. So you can find him on there. Read some of these humorous Facebook statuses and wish him a happy birthday if you want to. Uh, No no E in Corey, I don't believe. All right. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to, um, let's see. Let's see. Who's interesting here? Let me start with Jeffrey in Queens. Hello, Jeffrey. Frank. Yes, Jeffrey. How you doing? Great. Let me take a shot in the dark about that math is racist topic. Okay. Fifty years ago, when I was in high school, um, I, I do remember the black kids had to be abused by other black kids by saying, "What well, are you trying to be white?" If they were interested in math. Well, so uh, just trying, I'm sorry, just trying to study, be a good student. They would suffer the accusation from other black kids. What are you trying to be, white? Yeah, but was that unique to math, or would they get that sort of attitude right. no matter what subject they were excelling in? Right, a, no, you, right. Good, good point well taken, Frank. And also, I don't, I don't know what's happened in the last 50 years. I, I guess I can assume it's, it's, it's continued on. No, I think you're right, this, right. And right. look, uh, other black people have talked about this before, how there's this uh, – and I don't think – it's probably not unique to black folks either, but I think it probably is – more prevalent in the uh, black community, uh, to the point of your observation, where there's almost this stigma associated with doing well in school. And I think that's a real shame. Thank you, Jeffrey. I just think that this is so much worse, um, this idea that we're taking something which could not be more egalitarian and we're having serious people claim that it's racist. It's just... It's just insane. It's insipid. It's stupid. It's insane. People don't know what we're talking about. Well, that's what you get for not listening to all four hours of this show. Got to listen to the whole thing. Now, a, a, right, a bright radio consultant, a bright radio programmer would uh, say that I should be correcting, you know, filling people in. Tough. Listen to the whole show. Uh, by the way, speaking of things you learn in school, are you familiar with Gregor Mendel? 
You remember Mendel? Think back to biology class. I remember um, my uh, biology class, and he was other science classes I took over the years too. He was a priest and a botanist, and I remember this from Mr. Torcelli's sixth grade science class. He was a priest and a botanist whose work laid the foundation for the study of genetics. He's really considered the father of genetics, and he he's dead now, obviously, but he lived uh, from 1822 to 1884. What do you do when the man known as the father of genetics turns 200? How do you celebrate? Well, of course, by digging up his body and sequencing his DNA. All right. <laughs> I'm not joking about this. This may sound like I'm doing shtick. I'm not. That uh, That is what a team of scientists in the Czech Republic did this year to celebrate Gregor Mendel, M- Mendel's uh, a scientist and friar whose experiment, experiments in the mid-1800s laid the work for modern genetics. Mendel lived and worked in Brno. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's B-R-N-O. I think I am. That is the second largest city in the Czech Republic. And with 2022 marking the bicentennial of Mendel's birth, local researchers there, where Mendel remains are something of a hometown hero, they search for ways to remember the man and honor the moment. They were talking about maybe doing a a festival, a scientific conference. They were talking about a, a statue. That's very nice. But one astronomer... Jury Dussek, director of the Brno Observatory and Planetarium, wondered whether the founder of genetics had ever been subjected to any genetic testing. And that apparently was the beginning. This crazy idea of digging up Gregor Mendel on his 200th birthday and sequencing his DNA got a lot of traction. So... Um, they went around to different specialists at the University of Brno to ask what might be possible. One person uh, says, I asked the anthropologists who had experiences with analysis of remains of various historical persons. They consulted with archaeologists as well. Exhuming Mendel from his grave and running these genetic tests on his remains turned out to be, this is not a joke here, everything I'm telling you is absolutely true, it turned out to be a very doable project. So long as they could get permission from the Augustinians, that's the religious order that Mendel belonged to and with which he remains. The Augustinian tomb in the city's central cemetery was thought to contain Mendel's body. So local religious leaders consulted with Augustinians in Prague, their bishop, and finally Augustinians in Rome, and eventually... Permission was granted. Philippe Party, a molecular biologist on the research team, felt that a heavy sense of responsibility came with being a part of this. This is a quote uh, that he made to NPR. Gregor Mendel is a person that's taught that is taught at the first course of genetics at the university. Everybody feels that he's very important, especially here in Brno. He's kind of a role model who stood at the beginning of everything we do. Mendel was ahead of his time in the way he used math, sorry Ku Klux Klan, to study patterns of inheritance in pea plants 
when looking at things like flower color and plant height. He analyzed a set of about 25,000 plants to actually get his numbers right and to create the formulas. And so in this regard, he was also kind of a visionary and really one step ahead. So these plant experiments that he did were known and respected during his lifetime, but his fame really took off after he died, after 1900, when geneticists rediscovered his work and realized his implications. Um, Daniel Fairbanks, a plant geneticist and the author of a book about Mendel, said no one at the time, including Mendel, I think, suspected that his work would be so groundbreaking in terms of being a major scientific theory. So the excavation of Mendel's tomb revealed, you ready for this? Five coffins stacked one on top of the other. They're digging this up. That was a big surprise, given that the tomb's marker had the names of only four Augustinian brothers. So Mendel's coffin seemed to be the metal one at the bottom. It was lined with some newspapers that were dated shortly before he died. Isn't that wild? The guy was buried with newspaper? Which seemed pretty conclusive. Still, they wanted even better evidence that this coffin held Mendel's remains. So Party, one of the researchers here, said we actually came up with this idea of going through his personal possessions because we knew we needed some reference material to actually confirm his identity. So curators at local museums let them swab items like Mendel's microscopes, his eyeglasses, written records of his meteorological measurements, and a cigarette case. The team also carefully searched inside Mendel's favorite books. In a book about astronomy, they found a hair. Imagine this, you're digging through a 200-year-old book looking for a hair? By looking at DNA from all that and comparing it to the DNA in the skeleton, they felt certain that they'd found Mendel's body. Sequencing his DNA revealed genetic variants linked to diabetes, heart problems, and kidney disease. Here is the variant that most intrigued the researchers. It was a gene that's been associated with epilepsy and neurological issues. Uh, This fellow, Mr. Fairbanks, said he suffered throughout his life from some sort of a psychological or neurological disorder that caused him to have very severe nervous breakdowns. That may may well have been an inherited condition, and that was a fascinating discovery that these scientists made. Now, the thing that I wonder is how would Mendel, a priest and a scientist, How would he have felt about his grave being dug up 200 years, almost 200 years after he was dead? I mean, they say when someone dies, may he rest in peace. They don't say may he rest until someone decides they want to dig up his grave and compare it to hairs in ancient books. Not ancient, but old books. So they think that uh, they thought about this, about how Mendel would feel about being disturbed in his grave to satisfy the curiosity of today's scientists. And this fellow, Mr. Fairbanks, said, I tend to think from what I know about him that he very well may have been happy about this. But, of course, we can't directly ask him, naturally. Um, But most of the people that were involved with this, not surprisingly, they lean towards that theory that Mendel would have liked this. We believe that he would be happy. We know he was a very, very enthusiastic for all kinds of research, 
noting that just before he died, Mendel requested that an extensive autopsy be done. According to them, he wasn't against research on his own body. So even though Mendel knew nothing about DNA or the role that it played in the inheritance patterns he so closely observed, in all likelihood, they say he wouldn't mind being part of research like this even after his death. I don't know. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, it's pretty cool. You know, it's uh, it's a, a one hand a great tribute to the father of genetics. It's a not nice thing that people even care to dig him up and sequence his DNA. On the other hand, eh, maybe you should let sleeping priests lie. What do you think? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. If you want to comment on anything that we have covered thus far. Let me say hello to Leo on the Upper West Side. Hello, Leo. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Uh, my question is: I, I have a, I have something I would uh, I would like to say on the beginning, uh, Frank. If you can take a little bit criticism, the interview today with the Medvedsky or Medvedev or whatever his name is, really felt like you guys spoke before, and uh, and the plan was let let's take. Trump's head on the playground and we're going to be kicking around. And then he said, no, I actually have some people who would not like it. I'm going to be looking the other way. I'll let you just kicking it around. I'm not going to defend him. That's how it felt, really. All right. Well, I mean, uh, I, honestly, I haven't spoken with Michael um, since April of 2021. So we did not speak before. And uh, look, I'm sorry. I guess you didn't like it. But what are you going to do? Uh, Frank, this is this is what I wanted to talk, talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think it's not it's not possible that uh, the the prosecutor Weiss, who is investigating the the laptop of Hunter, mm-hmm. actually find some remarks which led to the fact that they are around the secret papers around Biden, and that's the way it, how it came actually out. Um, you know. I, I, I I have no idea, right? I mean, I I really couldn't even begin to uh, to speculate. But uh, you you got me, you got me. No idea. I, I think I, Garland should appoint actually the vice, elevate him up to special counsel, and pair him up with the with the her her, whatever how it pronounced, uh, who is investigating Biden's papers. Yeah, I, because I, there is a I, I don't agree, Leo. I don't agree. And I'll tell you. And thanks for the call. I I don't agree because they really are uh, two different types of investigations. Right. So it might be found that Hunter Biden committed some crimes and is going to be prosecuted for it. In fact, I think it's likely at the very least, it appears that Hunter Biden took some tax deductions that he wasn't entitled to. It appears that he lied on his uh, application for a gun permit, lied about his drug use and other things. And to me, it looks like Hunter Biden, the prosecution of him is a pretty open and shut case. The prosecution of a sitting president is a much different situation. So I would uh, think that David Weiss should focus on Hunter Biden and let the other independent counsel or special counsel investigate the uh, Joe Biden document case. But honestly, I am um, I feel like I've heard so much about this already now. You can't not talk about it because it is important and it is news, but it's just I'm sick of hearing about it, honestly. 800-848-9222. Um, original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Original Rick. Yes, good morning, Frank. Good Thank morning. you. About, uh, uh, let me qualify the question before I make an idiot of myself. When we're talking about the uh, 
fertilizer. We're talking about human excrement, not actually grounding up humans, right? Correct, yes. Okay, because that lady brought up a... No, well, that is a separate thing. So there's human composting, right, which you can, which is now legal in New York and a couple of other states, which is becoming a, a, an inc- a, a trend. But, but no, with this study that I cited out of Europe, that dealt with, yes, human you know, feces. Well, the human composting is a great thing for the mob, right? I mean, they're not, they're not, <laughs> but anyway, um, with the human excrement, this is a thing where science says one thing, but real-world applications don't. Um, seeds from fruits and vegetables pass through the human digestive system uh, viable, a lot of them. Uh, tomatoes, um, <clears throat> apples, uh, uh, watermelons, they still grow after you've pooped them out. And there was a giant uh, lawsuit from a golf course because they bought some fertilizer and they had tens of thousands of tomato plants growing on their greens because it turned out to be human excrement. So even though there's no antibiotics, it just isn't. You would have thought that people would have used this in time and through history with all the outhouses and everything. You know, we we tried to get rid of this excrement for a long time. If it was good for growing, I think it would have been used by well, now. Well, you know, I hear you, Rick. I would have thought the same thing, which is why I um, this study piqued my interest. And look, I mean, you might be right, but um, uh, this looks to be very promising results, right? I'm not – I want to be very clear. I'm not suggesting that everybody, if you're running short on fertilizer, go out and poop in your own vegetable garden. But – it's nice to know that you at least have that option. When you got to go, you got to go, I suppose. 800-848-9222. Carol is in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Oh, hi there, Frank. You hi. know, I think it was amazing that uh, Father Mandel was a scientist. And I think this is really interesting and wonderful that they're going to do, uh, you know, this testing on him. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting also. I guess the question is about the appropriateness of taking someone who's been dead for 200 years and digging yeah. up their body and running all sorts of tests on it, even though we don't know how he would have felt about that. What, what, what do you think of that? I mean, would you want somebody running these tests on your body in 200 years after you die? Um. I'm not sure about that, Frank. Right. Well, so but, that's that's know, the thing. I mean, there's an, a little bit of an ethical question here. But I'm wondering how much how much of the remains are they going to be after 200 years? Well, it's just pretty much a skeleton. Yeah, yeah of course. So, so that's that. Yeah, but he, mm-hmm. you know, apparently enough of it to do this DNA sequencing. Thank you, Carol. You know, the thing is, people may say, "Oh, that's so interesting that Mendel was a priest," and it is interesting. But back then, if you were interested in science or if you were interested in really kind of any high-level scholasticism, especially in Europe, the way to do that was to uh, join the priesthood because those folks had access to books. They had access to knowledge. Uh, This was not an era where everybody went to college. If you wanted to devote yourself to the cause of education, research, scholarship – you became a priest. I'm sure Mendel was very, you know, devout. Well, I mean, I'm not sure. I have no idea, to be honest. But that's what you did. If you were interested in studying science or math or anything along those lines, anything that was heavily into research, you became a priest. And uh, who knows? Maybe it's because math and science were so racist at the time. All right. 
800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. One, two, three, four, five open lines. We'll continue with your calls straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Everybody else, this another Corey Windelspect selection. Happy birthday, Corey Windelspect. Your gift is we let you pick the music. So there's that. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on uh, anything we're talking about. By the way, I uh, was uh, chatting with um, Andrew Giuliani on Friday Friday morning. He was coming in here to uh, co-host the Sid and Friends in the Morning Show. He's one of the Friends and whenever Andrew and I get together, we talk a little bit about politics, but mostly what we talk about is our, our children. We have uh, two children. We when we each have a child that's about the same age. I think my son is nine days older than his daughter, right? So we're kind of going through the <laughs> the same thing. And I'm telling him about how my son Carmine he he's walking all over the place now. He's walking. He's not even walking. He's running, running. And he, occasionally what happens is he climbs up on the sofa or wherever else um, and he, he falls off the sofa and hits his head and hurts himself. And then as soon as he stops crying, he'll go and do it again. So on Thursday, I think it was, Wednesday or Thursday of last week, he, I'm watching him, and usually I try to stay on top of him, but I'm on the couch with him, I don't know, and he crawls ahead of me, he's quick, the little bugger, and he falls right off the couch, plops his head, just the way I did when I uh, collided with my nightstand the other day, and then I'm looking at his head, and it looks like he's got a scratch or something. Now I thought he fell and hit the back of his head. I don't. I didn't think he hit the front of his head, but he had a scratch on his forehead, in the front of his forehead. I think what happened is he scratched himself because his nails were sharp. We cut his nails after that, but I think he probably scratched himself with his own nails because they are sharp. They scratch me. So um, I take an adhesive bandage and I put it, you know, like a band aid. But I, I don't. I don't know if it's a brand name band aid. So. I'll say adhesive bandage. And I put a, an adhesive bandage on his forehead. Cut his fingernails, and we keep the adhesive bandage on his forehead for a day or two. And he looks like a fighter, right? He looks like he's uh, mixing it up. He's a brawler. And then we take this adhesive bandage off maybe a day and a half later. And he's got a mark on his forehead, a big red mark from the bandage itself. I guess it caused dry skin or whatever the case. He got a red mark on his forehead. So then 
Saturday, my wife's leaving the house, right? She went somewhere. She went to go pick up uh, furniture or something. And she puts her pocketbook down for a second in an area where he can grab it. And so he grabs it. And it comes comes down onto him. The contents of her pocketbook come onto his head. And the pocketbook itself goes onto his head. So... You know, we hold him, he cries a little bit, he cheers up after about two or three minutes. You know, he's fine. But maybe about 15 minutes after this, he's got this big old scratch on his eye. And he looks almost like Al, uh, on, uh, between his eye and his cheek. And he looks like uh, Al Capone, the giant scar, on, and it's not a scar, it's a scratch, on his, on his left eye. And so he's now got this red lump on his forehead, still the remnants of a scratch from either scratching himself or falling down, and a uh, giant scratch on his uh, left cheek. So the the kid looks like he's been through 12 rounds. Uh, Every day there's a new scratch on him. I mean, he doesn't seem to be deterring him at all. He's still doing well, but... uh, and honestly, that that scratch from the pocketbook incident, I don't know what happened if the zipper cut him or if there was something else in that pocketbook that was kind of sharp and scratched him. But, um, you know, it is what it is. Uh, I guess that comes with the with the uh, territory of being a 14-month-old, which he will be in two days, officially 14 months old. So uh, he's starting to say more words. I mean, he's not exactly sure what everything means. He does say thank you. When he he takes something, you know, I'll hand him a, a treat or a toy or something, and he'll say thank you. But also sometimes he'll hand me something or somebody else something, and he'll also say thank you. So I, I don't know that he knows thank you exactly what it means. He gets the concept of when something changes hands, you're supposed to say thank you. But he thinks even when he's giving something to something uh, to someone else that you're supposed to say thank you. He um. One of the things he does that's very cute is he's got this bottle of milk, and I know we're trying to transition him to a a sippy cup now, but he's got this bottle of milk, and he'll take a sip, and then he'll offer me some. And he's very good at sharing, at least sometimes. And sometimes he'll even try to share his bottle with his stuffed animal. He's got a stuffed animal dog that he likes, and he'll try and feed the stuffed animal the bottle. It's very, very cute, so... He's uh, he's doing well, and he, we had a, we had a fun weekend running around together. His fun favorite thing, and I don't have the energy to do that much of it. His favorite thing is um, crawling up the stairs, having me carry him back downstairs, and then crawling up the stairs again. That's his favorite activity thus far. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. By the way, we were talking Friday about the um, the meeting we were scheduled to have. The post-show meeting, the weekly post-show meeting, which was supposed to take place really right after the show. And yet, we waited around two hours, and our, the program director never came. And, I, you know, I didn't mind because I got to see Andrew Giuliani, I got to talk to Curtis, I got to finish a memo. But, I mean, it is a little irritating because my wife, as part of her job, she goes on television on Fridays. So, she, you know, it's only a quick hit in a local not only, but, you know, for a local station in um, Nashville and or in uh, uh, Vegas or both, actually. And she's counting on me to be home as quickly as possible to look after our son. But I couldn't because I was here waiting around for two hours for a meeting 
that never ended up taking place. And then I get a memo later that day that they're changing all sorts of things. And I said, well, it would have been nice if this was mentioned in the meeting. Oh, wait, you didn't show up for the meeting. I mean, really? You talk about being disrespectful to people and their time. All right. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. A lot to get to this hour, and we will, including the $1,000 Minute, including 15 Seconds of Fame. A ton of interesting stuff to get to. You know, a couple of people have been complaining that I have not been giving enough time for the 15 Seconds of Fame, so I'm going to try and make an effort to give a good few minutes today so people can call in and be heard at the end of the show for 15 seconds. I'll tell you the saddest story I don't know if it was the saddest when, you know, you're talking about 10 people being killed in a mass shooting. I'll tell you what, one story I saw over the last few days that um, I found to be a real shame. And it has to do with the Los Angeles Police Department. Uh, Now, I take this very seriously because uh, my brother-in-law, David, is a member of the LAPD, does a great job out there. And, you know... Everywhere in this country, the symbol or the flag of a thin blue line is meant to be something that's supportive of police. Basically, you know, you've seen it a hundred times. I I sometimes wear a uh, lapel pin with a flag that has it. We actually had um, pins made from the radio station with this. The flag depicts a black and white U.S. flag with a single blue stripe in the middle. And the phrase thin blue line is supposed to mean or symbolize the line that separates order and public safety from lawlessness. And that's all it is. It's a nice, I think, a nice relatively innocuous way to support the men and women that serve as police officers. I think it's as non-controversial as something can be. But, of course, that's little old naive Frank Moreno. Because now the LAPD police chief, Michael Moore, has issued a ban forbidding department personnel from sporting the thin blue line patch on their work uniforms and on other department equipment. I have to tell you. I really question, like, I'm not a police officer. I don't don't pretend to know anything about policing. But I really question the wisdom of this decision by Chief Moore or any police chief in the country that would make a similar decision. What's wrong with a police patch 
uh, on your uniform that has a thin blue line. All you're saying is you support the cops. And it's and reminding people that see that patch that it is the police that are the line between lawlessness and public safety. I don't think there's anything wrong with it at all. Now, if somebody had a political patch on there, whether to support a candidate like Trump or Biden or even to support a cause like, uh, oh, I, I uh, think global warming's terrible or uh, – Whatever, Black Lives Matter, uh, well, you know, I, I would think that's a different matter. But I don't, I don't see anything wrong with having a patch with the thin blue line on it. But Chief Moore has issued this ban forbidding department personnel from sporting the thin blue line patch on their uniforms and similar bumper stickers on police vehicles. This was just reported Saturday. So maybe there'll be more to this, but uh, as this evolves, Moore also ordered the thin blue line flag to be removed from police station lobbies this month, according to the L.A. Times. I mean, I just found this to be so sad. What's next? Are you going to have to remove the P in police department? The flag, um, I don't think, is a political statement at all. But they say a lot of the reporting on this says that the phrase thin blue line has been a divisive one in American society because those who see it as a simple show of support for law enforcement like me differ from those who view it as an excuse for police abuse of authority. I could not disagree more. There was a... um, There was an element of um, the NYPD about 30 years ago that started, I think it was the, I don't know if it was the street crime unit or some other element of the NYPD, and they started adopting the phrase, we own the night. And look, I could understand, and there's a great picture uh, by uh, by that name, we own the night, I love that. But I can understand if they started putting that phrase on their uniform, we own the night, why people would think, okay, you're kind of saying that you're above the law, you're kind of saying you don't have to appeal, you don't have to adhere to society's standards, conventions, and laws, and rules, but just a thin blue line? I don't think that that is an excuse for police abuse of authority at all. You know what should occur if a police officer is breaking the law or abusing their authority somehow? They ought to be disciplined. Maybe even prosecuted. But to say that this patch, the thin blue line flag, is in any way indicative of supporting police misconduct, I think that's, quite frankly, idiotic. I think it's something you got to be on another planet for. I'm curious what you think. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. So Chief Moore sent out a department-wide email. You always got to watch out for those company-wide or department-wide emails. Never, No one ever sends a department-wide or company-wide email telling you how great things are going. It's always something you can't do. So Chief Moore says, It's unfortunate that extremist groups have hijacked the use of the thin blue line flag to symbolize their undemocratic, racist, and bigoted views. Flags serve as powerful symbols with specific meanings. 
This is a lot of nonsense. The newspaper reported that uh, officers are still allowed to display the flag in their personal workspaces, lockers, and personal vehicles. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You could keep it in your, your personal vehicle. Oh, nice. Wonderful. What's next? Are they going to allow you to fly it in your own home? Oh, don't go too far. Um, this is drawing a lot of criticism from a lot of people. Retired LAPD homicide de- detective Sal LaBarbera tweeted, I love seeing our LAPD in the national news, except this time for the most embarrassing reason. Calling Chief Michael Moore weak for, having to, for caving to the communist mayor. Grow a spine, support the troops, and law and order. Now, I don't know um, if that's a fair um, criticism of the mayor. I don't know if this is her influence or what the story is here. But it's just a shame that they're needing to go through this. Uh, Judge Janine Pira was on Fox News talking about the thin blue line flag ban. I, I really just can't even believe this is happening. This is what Judge Pirro said. The reason this decision was made was because of a single complaint. One person was offended by the blue striped flag, and now it's banned inside the police station, period. The chief didn't even fight back. In fact, he defends it. He says the flag represents, quote, violent extremist views to some. Really? That's an insult to the men and women who bravely serve our communities. Just look at what's happening in cities like L.A. We need to back our police more now than ever. I agree with Judge Pirro. Um, Chief Moore's five-year term as chief ends in June, but he has requested reappointment for a second term. He wrote in a letter to the Board of Police Commissioners in December that there remains more work to be done, and he has a strong desire to continue leading the department. So clearly this is what that's about. I mean, there's clearly a uh, professional and political calculus to this. He thinks that by doing this, this is going to help him get reappointed. I mean, uh, uh, whatever. I I just, I don't know. I don't like it. 800-848-9222. Let me begin. We had a bunch of mics on the line. Let me begin with Mike M. in New Jersey. Hello, Mike M., yeah, good morning. Uh, I agree kind of halfway with you on the thin blue line thing. Uh, it's okay, for I feel like, for police to put, you know, we support the community and, and all that kind of stuff on their cars and their whatever. But kind of like the thin blue line on your uniform, it's kind of like, you know, a gang having a certain tattoo. I could, That's how I reason it. Not like I think it i don't think it but i could see where somebody would think it you know you know what i mean well let's say look you know for instance i know a lot of marines right uh, both uh, current and uh, and retired marines a lot of them have a marine corps tattoo usmc or uh, or uh, something that says clearly this is what that's about <laughs> is that is that myself all right mike thank you i'm gonna just continue because i think i'm hearing myself back but um the um I think that, uh, to your point, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a tattoo that shows solidarity with a patriotic organization or uh, a group that you are uh, you know, proud to be associated with. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I know a lot of Marines 
that have the, you know, I haven't noticed this as much with other branches. I'm sure it goes on in other branches, but I see it much more, much more frequently with the Marines for whatever reason. And they'll have a lot of times I'll know, uh, I'll notice Marines have the tattoo that says death before dishonor. And look, more power to you. You want to do that. Why not? 800-848-9222. Mike is in Myrtle Beach. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. Howdy. Uh, good. I just tuned in a little while ago. Um, here's my feeling about that. I, I got a lot of friends retired, NYPD, Nassau County. It's outrageous, you know. Uh, w- with what we got going on in the country, I don't, I don't like uh, revisionist history. I don't like taking statues down. And I said on, uh, I think, Curtis's show, uh, listen, if they put a statue of Kaepernick up, me and 20 friends, I'll take it down. I'll take it down with what's going on. And I'll leave you with this also, Frank. My dad, rest his soul, was supermarkets. Uh, he had a store in Garden City. Uh, uh, Greg Kelly, his parents shop there. Uh, Ray Kelly, I met at a bar in, in, in Garden City. And the present mayor of the city of New York, he even went so far as to call Ray Kelly a racist. Well, stop with the race card. I'm sick of it. Let's, you know, see if we can just get along because enough is enough. Enough is enough, you know? Uh, Well, thank you, Mike. Look, I don't think – thank you very much. I don't think it's a good idea to tear down statues even if there are people you don't like. Like uh, you mentioned Colin Kaepernick. I would say I don't think they're going to put up a statue of Colin Kaepernick anytime soon. But honestly, these days, who knows? <laughs> I mean, I'm hesitant to say that. We're in sort of a new era. But I, I am not a believer, no matter what the cause is, in vandal in vandalism or vigilante statue destruction. If you don't like a statue, just walk on by or vote for people that don't want to put it up, Right. There's no need to uh, gather friends and try and take that statue down. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Joe in Pennsylvania. Hello, Joe. Yes, hi, Frank. About a simple line. Um, It's more, you see, there's a problem throughout the country with uh, police brutality. It's not a race issue, but there's a problem. And some people view it when the police back each other, regardless of if somebody did something wrong or not. Um, and they keep backing each other because he's part of the, the police department. They see it as part of the Tim Blue Line Club. So they look at it, they look at it like a, a gang thing. That's, that's yeah, what it comes I, down to. I, I hear you, Joe, right? But I, I, feel, like that's, um, I, think, I feel like that's unfair, right? I, I feel like that really is an example of... Um, you know, a few bad apples, meaning police officers that would engage in police brutality, to ruin what I view as a pretty innocuous symbol indicating overall law enforcement. I mean, I don't think there's anything at all contradictory with, on the one hand, prosecuting police brutality swiftly, harshly, aggressively, doing uh, all sorts of uh, programs within the the department, educational programs, training programs to make sure that officers know that there's zero tolerance for police brutality, but at the same time allowing them to wear a a symbol that indicates respect and support for police officers everywhere. I I get what you're saying, and that's exactly what Chief Moore is saying, but I don't agree. 
But uh, you see, that, that's where it comes. That's that's where exactly you hit you you you, you nailed it. Because if you or somebody would try to go and prosecute a police officer and have them investigate themselves because that's what they're doing. It's very hard to find one case where they find that their police officer did something wrong, unless it's out there in the public and it's very egregious. Otherwise, they say, no, no, nothing wrong here, nothing wrong here. Because if if I would investigate myself, I'd probably say the same thing. Because they're all part of the same cabal. There's no oversight committee above the police. It's all internal. Everybody's part of the same club. Well, look, obviously, I'm less familiar with um, how it works in L.A., but in New York, there are a lot of uh, there is a lot of oversight. So in New York, you have not only the Internal Affairs Bureau, but you have five district attorneys. You have a a special court appointed monitor and you have uh, two U.S. attorneys, all of whom are empowered to investigate uh, police. Oh, and you have the Civilian Complaint Review Board. All those entities are are empowered to investigate police misconduct. So I think in New York, and I imagine it's a similar situation in L.A., and thanks for the call, Joe, I I think that you do have a situation where there are plenty of layers of oversight for police misconduct. And I don't see how prohibiting a cop that wants to wear a thin blue line flag, I don't see how that helps anybody, quite frankly. Not the cops, not people that are victims of police abuse or anyone else. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Vito. Hello, Vito. Hey, Frank. How are you? Great. Um, listen, in, in, um, the, uh, you brought that food in tonight. Why don't you give uh, half of it to Matt Blaze and the uh, other half, you can put it in a manila envelope, address it to that correctional facility or wherever it is, that you uh, wanted to give uh, a commendation to and let them uh, learn how to cook their own food rather than, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, um, you know, them provided with or, or better meals. I mean, you could, you could do a lot with a bologna and cheese sandwich. I could tell you that right now. Well, um, the, um, you know, one, just as a practical matter, I don't know how, uh, you know, to FedEx a half a pastry to uh, to a prison, but uh, you know, if we could find a way to do that, and thanks for the suggestion, Vito. If um, we, I know we have a lot of people listening who are incarcerated. If you know of a way that I could FedEx a half of uh, crostata, please let me know. I mean, I'm not going to go to the trouble of freeze drying it and throwing dry ice in there. I don't know how well a a, a half consumed crostata is going to travel, but if you know of a way, and you're uh, incarcerated at the moment. Please email me, frank.morano at uh, wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Ed is on Staten Island. Hello, Ed. Oh, hi, Frank. Hi. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about, the most important thing, is your son sounds like a perfectly healthy, you know, 14-month-old boy. Thank you. And, uh, you know, my advice to you is uh, you're going to have to reassess your entire kitchen. You got to move like Windex and bleach. Oh, uh, well, yeah, we, we have all that locked. Like, so we have a, sort of a child lock so he can't open the cabinet. We, you got to kind of push it down good. and pull simultaneously. Yeah. yeah, good. And then wait till he starts teething. It's going to be living with a badger. The, fir- the first thing he's going to bite into is the rail on his crib. You know, it's funny is that it- you say that because he has pretty close to a full mouth of, te- uh, a full mouth of teeth now. And yesterday... 
That's he, early. Yeah, well, you know, he, he's uh, he's got a lot of teeth. We brush his teeth every night. But um, yesterday he was biting a, a a wicker basket that my wife has some blankets in or something in our uh, in our den, and um, that was precisely the words that my wife used. That it looked like it was attacked by a, a beaver or a badger. So yeah, yeah, he's, he's making a lot use of, of those pressure teeth. with the teeth coming in. Yeah, he's been biting. We have some magnetic darts uh, in uh, in the bar room, which is also a, a play room, and uh, he's been he's been putting these magnetic darts in his mouth, which I don't like at all. Yeah, well, also, remember, he's going to get hurt, and he's going to bleed on his head because he sounds like he's adventurous. Yeah, oh, yeah. And remember, the skin on the skull is very thin, and it looks ten times worse than it is. It's usually a tiny little laceration, but parents, newborn, uh, I mean, new parents tend to freak out when they see blood. So just, you know, put a little ice on it, put a little pressure, no Band-Aid because he's going to rip it off anyway. And, uh, you know, just uh, enjoy him. Uh, well, thanks, Ed. I, I appreciate that. Uh, very kind of you. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. Hi, Robert. I'm against the stopping of free expression, like the blue line flag and other things. Like, for example... I would fly the state flag upside down in protest of Kathy Hochul. Okay. Well, so, I mean, what do you mean? If you were a police officer? No, no. uh, It's flying the flag or not, and how you do it is a form of free speech Mm -hmm. expression. So me flying the state flag upside down is a form of protest. Sure, but n- uh, nobody's stopping you from doing that, right? So I guess the question is, no. should is Chief Moore right to stop the police from putting a, this patch on their uniform or on their vehicle? Oh, no, he's wrong. Yeah, I agree with you, Robert. I think we're on the same page. Thank you. Now, I think it's a different ball game if it was something that was overtly political, like a vote for this person or a... Or, uh, you know, no or George Santos with a line through it, right? Something along those lines. 800-848-9222. By the way, uh, I am loving the exchanges that are going on in the uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters Facebook group. But I mean that sincerely because everybody's on topic. I love it. Uh, if you don't, if you're not familiar with this uh, Facebook group, you could join it at facebook.com/groups/radio Morano. And basically, this group was created to give people an opportunity to continue the conversations that take place on the show about the show after the show is over. Because when I was growing up listening to radio and all my favorite hosts, I would just live to encounter someone that listened to that same show, so I could keep talking to them about it. And it would made my day. It was just so so great. So this Facebook group is designed to be that same continuation of conversation for a show that you listen to. Now, um, Chuck in the Facebook group writes: In case you did it, he he's using improper English, but I'll clean it up. In case you didn't get my emails, here it is in public. Thanks for keeping me on hold for 42 minutes before I hung up on Friday morning and today for 25 minutes. I forget what I wanted to say by the time I get on, <laughs> you long-winded blowhard. 
What you do on the air, I do all day, every day of my life. I have great thoughts, and I share them where and when I can. And I make people laugh. No matter where I go as I share my thoughts, you do it over the airwaves and as dry as it can be. Oh, um, and as dry as I it can. Oh, I, missed, I hit the wrong button here. This is a long post. And as dry as it can be, um, and he goes on to say, uh, I I lost the page. But anyway, uh, who is this fella that was waiting on on hold 25 minutes? Do we know who this person is, Matt or uh, Christian? Yeah, well, what's his name? I mean, he was Charlie, right? Wasn't it Charlie? Oh, was Charlie in Hell's Kitchen or? No, I don't remember where he was from. Um, did, Did I talk to him? No. Oh, I didn't. You hung up. I guess he hung up after waiting. Oh, he hung up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I do think the best way to handle a... Pr- oh, no, no, no. Uh, so, yeah, I can't I can't find uh, the rest of his uh, comments now. Um, yeah, well, sorry. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people trying to get on. A lot of times if I see that um, there's a name that I recognize as someone that calls in a lot, um, I will go to other people to try and get new people on. So and maybe that was it. Or maybe the way his comment was put up there it just didn't look interesting. If, I always try to go to the comment that looks the most interesting. Um, okay, I found it. I laughed once in all the times I have listened, and that was an hour ago, when you used the term mush for what they serve in prison. Go to YouTube, Frank. <laughs> for real, this is important. Search for Phil Robertson Peace of Mind. You won't be disappointed. Tough? Listen to the whole show. That's arrogant as hell. Be glad anyone listens at all. Jeez. And looking at the calls, asking yourself who is interesting? As if any of us are not interesting. No, that's true. Some of you are just not interesting. How about, and by the way, I'm cleaning up a lot of the spelling errors here, but that's fine. As I've always said, it's amazing to me how the people that are most critical of me are functionally illiterate. They can't spell. They can't capitalize. They can't alphabetize. They can't read. Um, How about going in order of call received? Damn, dude, you you are really digging your own hole tonight. It took you 36 minutes to take a call, and you gave Jeffrey a whole 10 seconds of time. As Ralph Cramden would say to his mother-in-law, you're a blabbermouth. And Spock goes in Haas deadpan way. Fascinating. Who cares about plants? Nobody. Also, still waiting for my $100 prize from back in March that you guys were supposed to investigate and get to me. $1,000 minute is a crock. There you have it. Whew. I said a lot there, uh, and I do like this comment as well uh, because uh, we, you know, we were talking about Michael Medved before and the Michael Medved interview. And David writes about uh, my step cousin Michael had a comment about Michael Medved, and you could agree with it, you could disagree with it, fine. And then David writes, uh, "That's a putative comment, but you failed to express what it means to you." Off the beaten path, I was disappointed in the interview. Much heralded in advance by Frank, I anxiously awaited this happening that turned out to be nothing but intellectual fast food. I like both of them, but the interview was about as stimulating as watching trained seals in a circus. I felt they could have addressed more vital current issues of greater relevance to us. What followed that guest spot was nothing short of appalling. (laughs) Frank's exchange with his screener criticizing Alex's absence at work on Mondays and Fridays is exactly the kind of insider talk that need not be broadcasted. In my opinion, a healthy PR policy for a radio station should include hosts not berating other staffers. Not to imply that Frank was being mean. 
It's just that it's inappropriate, and above all, it's neither informative nor entertaining. If Frank, any other host for that matter, has issues with staffers whom work behind the scenes, then it should be kept within the confines of behind the scenes in a private airing. Just my opinion. No, it's legitimate. I love that comment. You know why? Because it's topical. It's about stuff that we have done on the show. And it, it has a lot of it, perfect syntax and grammar. So uh, I, I'm all, that's fine with me. Uh, more power to you, David. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to um, John in Orange County. Hello there, John. Frank, how you doing tonight or, or this morning? I know I had called the other week. We spoke about UAPs. You told me to give you a call back anytime. Oh, good. Well, uh, I'm glad you did. Over, Welcome back. Yeah. So I uh, cut in uh, towards the end of your program, but I got enough of, about what's going on with the whole thin blue line patches out in uh, L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm currently a working member of law enforcement in, uh, in the state of, of New York, and um, something similar happened to where I work. I don't want to go into detail because of politics. Sure know exactly where I work, but um, a thin blue line flag was displayed at our apartment, and um, somebody on social media had just made a, it almost seemed like, a, a, like a, an anonymous opinion to say, hey, that's racist. You guys are racist because you guys have a, a thin blue line flag at oh. your apartment. And the commissioner of the apartment made us take it down. And I know one of my bosses had a problem with it, and I overheard him in the office one morning going going at it, you know, you know nothing too crazy, but he, he voiced his opinion. He said, you know, what the reality is and what the reality is that this flag has been recognized by members of law enforcement for years, and it doesn't represent any sort of uh, group or sort of gang mentality right. or any sort of extremist or racist. It, it's very simple. It represents that the men and women who serve in law enforcement stand on the what they call the thin blue line that separates right. good and bad. Right. So for the people that can't help themselves, that can't defend themselves, the men and women of law enforcement stand on that very thin blue line and they put their lives at risk, you know, every time that they go to work to help the people that can't be helped and they stand for the good against the bad. And it's very it's that simple. Well no, no I, I agree. I agree with everything that you said, John. John, in your case, um who was it that made the decision to prohibit the display of a thin blue line flag? It was a it was a commissioner. Unbelievable. The, uh, the department. Uh, and and what was the rationale? Was it similar to Chief Moore in L.A., which is that uh, it was uh, that it's been co-opted by extremist groups? I was never actually given any sort of formal answer it just was taken down and like through the grapevine is ha- kind of how it seemed like it went like we heard through the grapevine but we said hey what happened to the flag and then you know i overheard this one of the bosses talking about it with him uh you know just through being in the building at the time but i was i was never given official uh, answer from the, the individual who requested that it be taken down but from what i gleaned from hearsay and through all the talk going on was somebody went to social media and made one a, a anonymous comment and said that flag is racist Ugh, and they didn't, horrible. They, they, they didn't have to quantify that there was no debate to say hey well if there is somebody that does feel that way i think we'd be willing to be open to debate to say you know what is what is it exactly about that flag that makes you believe it's racist and maybe we can have a sit down or, or have a talk 
and say, you know, this is what it means. It doesn't mean anything racist. It doesn't mean anything bad. It doesn't mean we're, we're a gang or a group and we're against you or against anybody. It, it simply means it's, it's a symbol of pride that men and women in law enforcement will wear. You know, sometimes I see it on a lot of police vehicles, off-duty. A lot of officers will have it on their cars and their bumpers. And it simply says you support the men and women who right. stand on the thin blue line between good and bad. And, uh, you know, I don't want to hold you up for too long, but I just say uh, God bless all those who are serving. And, and there are others who serve in, in fire departments who have the, 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 uh, the red line flags and anybody in human or emergency services that dedicate their lives to helping other people. Sure. You know, I, I agree God with you completely, you. John. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hey, what we're going to do is um, give you an opportunity to win $1,000 in just a moment. If you are the seventh caller right now, to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You could play the $1,000 minute. And if you uh, answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then you will be the proud recipient of $1,000. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Go ahead and call. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of midnight. There's another Corey Windelspecht selection in honor of his birthday. Uh, congratulations to you, Corey Windelspecht, on aging. Uh, meantime, it is time for someone to have an opportunity to win a lot of money in a hurry. It's time for the other side of midnight presents. It's the thousand dollar minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Uh, thank you, Chris Libertine. Let us say hello to Russell in North Carolina. Hello, Russell. Hey, Frank. Hey, Russell. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm so good. I can't stand it, man. I'm, I'm great. Wonderful. So you know the rules of how this contest works, right, Russell? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. All right. So if you're ready, let's get started. All right, let's do it. What is the first letter in the English language alphabet? A. Name a movie that Harrison Ford was in. Oh. Harrison oh. Ford. Oh, oh. Harrison Ford, yeah. That the one with the, the the Amish kid. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not a movie guy, Frank. Um, 
snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? Galaxy far, far away. The witness. Um, uh, all right, we'll accept that. What is the capital of Italy? Uh, Milan? No, I'm sorry. Um, uh, um, it's Rome. Rome. Oh, yeah, 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 Rome, yeah. Um, my, my English self apologizes to you, Frank. Uh, well, hey, it happens. Russell, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I'm going to put you on hold. Uh, we're going to have Christian or Kenneth take your information. We're going to send you a consolation prize, okay? Hi, right, thanks, man. Thanks, Russell. Appreciate it. So, um, hey, got got hung up on the capital of Italy. And he was having a tough time with Harrison Ford there. I thought that was an easy question. That's why I made question two. You know, he's in all he, – I, I was watching while well, I was putting together the quiz yesterday – the uh, CBS Sunday morning show. Great show yesterday. And they had a whole thing on Harrison Ford. And they went through all the great movies he's done over the years. I mean, you got Star Wars, three Star Wars films, four Indiana Jones films, six days, seven nights. You got uh, Witness, as the fella finally came up with, American Graffiti, um, Regarding Henry. And there's so many great Harrison Ford films. I, uh, you know, I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Come on. So, um, could have just said Indiana Jones. Well, I guess we would have given that to <laughs> well, him. That Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Indiana right, Jones. I right. Mean, exactly. But Air Force One. I mean, there's so many good Harrison Fugitive. Ford. Fugitive. Cowboys and Aliens. You know, what lies beneath. 42, if you like baseball. So whatever. I guess some people some people aren't into it. All right. Um, so be it. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on uh, anything that we are talking about. In addition to Gary Perone and uh, Corey Windelspect, I want to wish a happy birthday to my friend Joe Sibelia, uh, who is a terrific singer and radio producer in his own right. So uh, I know uh, he is preparing, probably listening right now, as he's preparing to uh, produce another radio show on another station. And um, he is a a great guy and a good friend. And uh, we want to wish him a happy birthday as well. As well as to um, uh, Chesley Sullenberger, a.k.a. Sully. You remember the pilot from The Miracle on the Hudson? Today's his birthday as well. And if um, if he's not a hero, then Tiffany Amber Thiessen certainly is. She turns 49 years old. I'll tell you, she looks great. I, I don't want to say that she looks great for 49. She looks great for any age, any age. And I tell you, also was uh, was John Hancock's birthday as well. He's of course no longer no longer with us. And today, you today was the birthday. Excuse me, the death day of two great talk show hosts. A year ago today, you might remember, we spent a lot of time talking about the passing of Larry King. I think we did a whole week of Larry King shows a year ago. If you're a Larry King fan um, and you didn't get to hear that, go back and listen to the podcast because we really dug up these Larry King clips that nobody found. And somebody that died on this day in 2005 was Johnny Carson. So uh, 
he uh, he I remember when he died, it was sad. But at the same time, when somebody with Johnny Carson's incredible impact and body of work passes away, it is an opportunity to at least go back and relive so many of the great moments that they created on television and on radio in the case of Larry King. So uh, Johnny Carson, I I still watch his Tonight Show. It's on every night on a network called Antenna TV, and whenever I can, I try and watch it. It still holds up. It's still great. And, and you know, honestly, so much of the talk shows these days, they're about, like, uh, playing games and doing these bits. When Johnny was hosting that Tonight Show, not only was his monologue really just brilliant comedic material, but the interviews themselves were great. And what I what they did back then, which I really liked, and I wish talk shows today would do this, and this maybe comes from the love of putting eclectic crowds together at parties that I'm throwing, is when somebody would be a guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson or other shows, but that's obviously the biggest at the, at the time. They'd come and be a guest, and then they'd move over, and then they'd sit there during the interview with the next guest. And so you'd have these unlikely pairings of people sitting next to one another, commenting on different things. You never see that these days. I don't know why they stopped that, but that produced so many wonderful, great moments. And uh, I wish they would do that more today. Hey, uh, speaking of media I, and, I, and interviewing, I want to thank Richard Johnson from the New York Daily News. He was kind enough uh, to give me a shout out in his Sunday column and uh, for the William Shatner interview, and he quoted the story that William Shatner told me about Stephen Hawking and we and the craft of interviewing. So uh, that was very nice, and he was kind enough to mention that our show is number one in the rating. So I appreciate that. There's, uh, Richard Johnson's only in the paper once a week these days, and for the fact that he gave me such a prominent shout-out, that was very, very nice and very kind. If you didn't get to read it, uh, I did link to it on my Facebook page at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. That's Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O-Fan. By the way, on that Facebook page, there's also quite a healthcare debate that has developed between Marianne Pizzatola, who's the head of the New York City retirees, who we had on talking about healthcare, and David from the Bronx. All, all about Medicare Advantage. Very interesting, very insightful. And you know who else weighed in on that? Which Jay Diamond, the talk show host, Jay Diamond. So a lot of people are always saying, whatever happened to Jay Diamond, whatever happened to Jay, Jay Diamond. Well, if you want to hear from Jay Diamond, he is right now commenting on that healthcare discussion right now. So you could find that uh, on Facebook. And I, I really like that my Facebook page has become a place where folks of differing views can debate politely and respectfully most of the time and make their voices heard. So if you want to be a part of any of that, it's uh, facebook.com slash Morano fan. All right. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Oh, yeah. Hi, Frank. Can you hear me? Yes, Larry. What's on your mind? Okay. Well, you know, um, did you hear the latest term that Curtis has for um – for Sid and Eric Adams, it's called metrosexual. It's the latest term he has. Have you heard that? I have, yes. Yeah, well, you know, he's the only, I call every show, basically, almost every show, and he's the only host 
that doesn't take my phone calls and he keeps me on hold sadistically. And you know why? Because every once in a while, I usually agree with him and everything he says, but once in a while, I take issue with him and he cannot take that. So you know what he is? He's a pretty boy. All right, but uh, pretty I mean, boy. Larry, why are you calling me to d- discuss this? Well, he only takes an hour to, to deride you on Saturday night. That's a, with, with, with Avery. I know, but so, uh, I mean, again, we're, we're, we're carried <laughs> in markets that don't even know who Curtis is, right? So it's like, I mean, he's filled in, but I mean, who cares, honestly? I mean, I, I don't want to be dismissive, but who does care? You know. Um, by the way, I want to thank uh, Jim in New Hampshire. Apparently, I was citing the band Talking Heads. Uh, I'll be very honest here. I had no idea that they were called Talking Heads. I thought they were the Talking Heads. So I said the Talking Heads, which I thought they were. And apparently that's like the Ukraine. Is They're not the Talking Heads. They're just Talking Heads. So I apologize Two talking heads <laughs> and members David Byrne, Chris France, Tina Weymouth, and Jerry Harrison. My apologies. All right, 800-848-9222. Hey, we're going to give you an opportunity to be heard in 15 seconds of fame in just a moment. If you want to comment on anything, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. And if you are... Um, uh, interested in being heard? There are six open lines, all with your name on it. We'll do that straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Sound of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, my thanks to Tony B for concocting this brilliant theme song. Uh, we're going to try and give uh, people an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds because I do tend to uh, go on a little bit and sometimes deny people of this opportunity. So we're going to give you a full, you know, couple of minutes to do this. 800-848-9222 if you want to be heard. Still one open line if you want to jump on board. 800-848-9222. And uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R A N O. You know, it's funny. Somebody tweeted something nasty about me the other day, and I retweeted it. And my friend Obi Murray, he said, "Well, what do you? What do you? The guy has zero followers. Literally zero followers. What are you doing that for? What are you giving a guy like that the exposure? And really, it's just to have fun." 
and to poke fun at the strong opinions that people have about just a silly radio show. Uh, But uh, clearly we're doing something right because uh, the numbers are all moving in a very positive direction. So a big thank you to everybody that listens and supports this show on a regular basis. And if you'd like to be heard for 15 seconds, now's the time as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Stephen in Westchester. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, with liberty and justice for all. Larry in Brooklyn. Yes, because certain concepts like racism are being weaponized in society when they're really just words. So we have to fly that blue flag and uh, we have to put all the people in jail who want to cancel any part of our culture. 800-848-9222. Raji. Hello, Curtis is supposed the reason of you on his show is in fact a sneaky, very, very sneaky form of commercializing and promoting your own show, Frank. Thank him. 800-848-9222. Rick in Tom's River. Good morning. The book out in 1986. Can't hear you, Rick. Call back. Ray in New Jersey. Great show tonight. I could comment on a lot of things, but I want to say nobody's going to pack stadiums like Donald Trump. Don't count them out. Tim Scott's a nice guy. He's not quite ready. Trump's the man. Thank you. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Leo on the Upper West Side. Frank, there could be lots of discussed subjects between Hunter and his business partners about the subjects which are in the secret paper. So there could be a fingerprint from Burisma People all over these uh, things. Why are you denying the connection between these two uh, investigations? Thank you. I wasn't denying. Uh, I, I, and look, if uh, either a prosecutor is able to come up with crimes that anybody has committed, you know, they can charge whoever they want, right? David in the Bronx. Yes. Anyone who gets one of the first three questions wrong during trivia should have to give Frank $1,000 or undergo the, cor- the curse of the Kavorka. <laughs> Thank you, David. 800-848-9222. E. Frank in Astoria. You know, uh, Frank, with the Lionel Messi um, from the soccer world, uh, what are you looking at dummy comments? How about the letting Eric Adams now hire a deputy mayor, um, Sean Donovan? Uh, thank you, E. Frank. You know, I was wondering if now that Tom Swazi doesn't have a job, if he would consider taking the deputy mayor's position that Eric Adams had offered him a year ago. Uh, although I think most people believe Tom Swansea is going to run for uh, George Santos' seat if Santos gets pushed out or charged. And finally, Troy is in Babylon. Hello, Troy. This Friday Saturday at the Washington, D.C. SEC building, the protest. Make sure you go. The SEC building in Washington, D.C., uh, protest Friday and Saturday. Thank you, Troy. All right. Uh, That concludes this edition of 15 Seconds of Fame. Thank you to everybody who called in. Uh, Back tomorrow. Got some interesting things tomorrow. Do you remember the the documentary that I told you about, about The Price is Right? Well, I believe I've been in touch with the person that that is the star of that documentary. It's It's an incredible documentary. If you want to be prepared for the interview tomorrow, 
Watch it on Netflix. It's called The Perfect Bid. He's going to join me tomorrow. It's a fascinating story. And um, we're going to get into it. And um, a bunch of other things uh, tomorrow as well. If you want to stay in touch, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Or find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash moranofan. You can see that photo of the five chairmen I was with over the weekend. Until tomorrow, Frank Morano, good day.